And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. So glad for you to join us. So glad to be a part of your your evening or daytime repertoire, depending on where where you are listening to us or watching us at. Coming to you live and in living color, high definition, right there, right here on the, on YouTube Live. Uh, actually, that's right, high def. We, uh, we were able to, and th- thank you for your support, all of your support. We were able to upgrade, um, certain things here. And we've got, uh, now spaceship, real spaceship quality stuff going on over at the, in, uh, Real Tech Eric's Corner. So, uh, you know, he actually has got caution tape around there. I'm not allowed to, crime scene tape, I'm not allowed to, you know, before, in, in my other life, I was able to go underneath that. And now I'm not allowed to. Go figure. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Boy, I'll tell you something. If you want to just tell your friends, your family members, your everyone you, you really like and care about, uh, about tonight's show, we've got some spectacular, we got a spectacular lineup and I don't want to take away from, from them at all except to say this portions of nice broadcast brought to you by Sherry's Berries. We want to welcome them as our sponsor, Sherry's Berries. Now let me tell you something, folks. They have a, they, they have an offer especially for you, the viewers and listeners. So that's right. With Valentine's Day right around the corner, there's only one way to get Sherry's Berries starting at 19.99. Actually, this is a, a special for the Hagman and Hagman listeners. Just visit berries, that's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. That's berries dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right hand corner and type in Hagman. That's berries dot com and use my code, Hagman, help support our show by supporting our sponsors, berries.com, our code Hagman, and there you will be treated to freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries. Oh, folks, just check this out. Okay. I tried one yesterday. Oh, yeah, man, check, check this out. great. Check this out. You think, you think, I mean, I mean, look, we, 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 we practice what we preach. We eat what we talk about. Oh, is this good, Sherry's Berries. All right, folks. Anyway, for, for those on Global Star list, uh, Radio, uh, they haven't quite invented the uh, scratch and sniff on your radio, but, man, they just smell good, the chocolate and the strawberries, that fresh fruit. Oh, it's good. Anyway, sharesbears.com. Uh, Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you. Let's, uh, yeah, we have a, a great show lined up for you tonight. Just to give you an idea of what's going on, we have Chad from Insurgency Broadcast. In this hour, we're going to get into a number of, of things, domestic and political issues. Then in hour two, we have Clint Hill and Lisa McCubbin. Now, Clint and Lisa have co-authored a book. Um, Actually, Clint, three. Yeah. Books, but yeah. And Clint was the one of the Secret Service men who was present at the Kennedy assassination. He was detailed to protect uh, Mrs. Kennedy. So we're going to talk to them not only about um, that day in Dealey Plaza, but also of, of the different administrations that he was a part of and, and some of the important reasons. aspects wow. of those administrations. And then in our three, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes will be joining us, and we're going to continue to talk about the domestic and political issues that are going on in our country. Specifically, again, lawfare, Joe. Yeah, he's going to get into that. 
but we're going to kind of overlap on some topics with Chad as well right. as with Stuart, starting with the UC Berkeley riots and other protests that have been happening around the country, this anti-Trump movement, this anti this pro-violence, anti-freedom movement uh, seems to continue to intensify. There's a lot of avenues to this. Yeah, and if you go on YouTube, search Insurgency Broadcast, and then subscribe to Chad's YouTube channel uh, to get all of his latest reports and and investigative findings. Chad, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Hey, guys, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, you know, it's we're happy to have you, and uh, you're you're kind of an Internet legend or becoming one. Well, I think you are. Um, Insurgency Broadcast Network on YouTube, and you've got so many great. I mean, you're, you've got your finger on the pulse of current events and things that are taking place. Let's get right into this. Let's dig right into this. We, Let's do it. We're, we're seeing. We're seeing. I, well, what are we seeing? <laughs> Civil war in America, right? You know what? What I really think we're seeing um, is we're seeing that the violent left has become the mainstream. I think the Obama administration has elevated the violent leftists in, uh, throughout his uh, administration, throughout his eight-year term. He never said anything. Anytime anything ever happened, whether it was the Black Lives Matter protest, he always sided with the violent leftists. And now you're seeing, you know, the worms bur- burst out of the can. You're seeing it become mainstream, and it's becoming mainstream because senators and Congress, senator, uh, um, congressmen in the House, are they condemning? These nope. riots? No. Are they condemning this uprising? They're still under the perception that Trump supporters are the violent ones. When these uh, leftists, every time they go out on the street, something has to get burned down. Something. So no, absolutely. I believe. Um, I believe we're leading in to an era where it's going to be difficult for Americans all across the board. Um, I don't think you know as far as Trump supporters go, we don't hit the streets and protest like these people do because we have time. We don't have we have lives. We don't have time to grab our signs and hit the streets every every time something happens in this country. So we protest at the ballot box. We protest at the ballot box. But if we do hit the street, I mean, there is going to be a big, big, big problem. You know, and um, well, do you think that there's going to be a blowback to this? See. Here's how I look at it. Um, the, the people, and you're right. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. We've got families. We, we, I mean, we pay our bills. We've got so much to do. Um, we don't have time to go out there and throw rocks and to, to you know, use uh, put graffiti on, on on buildings. Um, so having said that, there will come, in my belief, and and, and this goes back to 2013, 2012, 2013, when, uh, or even even before that, when my DHS source. Had told me, look, uh, you don't understand what's going on. Telling me, uh, you better get get ready for some ugly, because ugly is coming down the road. And at that time, I understood that to be, you know, Obama's reelection. But uh, you know, and his and his, well, he said, look, uh, uh, plans or the timing changes. The plans don't. The objectives don't. So what what, you're, what we're seeing yeah. now, I believe, is what he was talking about. So okay, so so let's kind of take a step back here and, and look at this. Um, well, rather than look at this in the in the full full aspect of things, last night you see Berkeley, the, the crap hit the fan. I believe. Where were the cops? Who who's, who was behind this protest? How did it get so organized so quickly? Uh, I got questions, you know, ton of questions, but. 
What, what, you know, these police, yeah, these, these, the police there, they want to do the job. They're so used to not being allowed to do their job that they're so timid about it. I think, though, uh, after time, during Trump's presidency, that will change. I mean, right now, we still have the same people technically in the Justice Department. Um, we, you know, we still have these same heads all over the place in these agencies. And they already sent out the message to the local police departments to say, no, 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 no. Don't protect the neighborhood. Let them build down. You remember in Baltimore, no, just give them room to destroy. Give them room to burn everything down. Was there an order to the police from somebody in Berkeley saying, just stand down, give them room, give the snowflakes room to destroy? You know, I, God forbid, God forbid, because these college campuses have becoming more um, leftist as time has gone by. I mean, if, if you look at the past, these teachers are violent leftists, and they are, are raising a generation of snowflakes, and that's why we're in the uh, problem that we see today. As far, again, as law enforcement, they need to push back. They need to push back. Trump is going to have their back. Trump's going to have their back. One session, Sessions, um, Senator Sessions, gets in the Justice Department, and he pulls back all these orders of the federal um, uh, the feds taking over local the police departments and that worry of, oh my God, if I do anything, you know, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get fired. I think, uh, right now there, there's trauma in a lot of cops' minds saying, if I do anything, if I do anything, it's going to be the same thing like, uh, uh, when during the Obama administration, I'm going to be either fired, suspended, or thrown in jail just for doing my job. So they might still be under that impression. But if a order was given out to the police to stand down, I mean, that has to stop. And I think Trump did send out the right message to UC Berkeley. Get rid, stop funding them. Stop funding these violent leftist campuses. They're not doing any, they're not teaching kids. They're not teaching these people. The only thing they're teaching is that free speech is not free speech. And if you disagree, don't debate. Just burn it down. Burn it down. So, I mean, hopefully, hopefully that uh, no order was given to the police to stand out. Well, I read that there was. Yeah. And the speculation that I heard came from the mayor, and I heard, heard also that an investigation was being launched against the mayor. There are some pictures floating around. I haven't verified them that they were actually from Berkeley yesterday, but um, it definitely made it, a few of these pictures made their way around um, on on different Internet forums and social media that there was about 30 cops with riot gear inside of a building at Berkeley waiting for who knows what, and from what what um, people are speculating, that they were told to stand down. I mean, what other excuse would there be for, you know, uh, riots to start taking place, violence, people being beaten with, uh, with sticks and pepper sprayed while they're giving interviews, fires are being started for over an hour, and no police, and no police to respond, that tells me it's an overt action that they intentionally, you know, did not go. But I'm sure they got a lot of calls. Um, oh, no, no, I'm sure they did, too. I'm sure they did. I mean, it's just the same thing, though, that we see over and over and over again, that they're allowed to do whatever they want. They're allowed to go. I mean, there was a body laying on the floor, not moving, a still body. You know, when I was looking at the, the, the coverage of it, I thought this person could have been dead. Mm-hmm. These, these, these violent leftists, they run past him, then they turn around and they start kicking him. Mm-hmm. He looks like a lifeless body on the ground. And you're absolutely right. I mean, they're getting these stand-down orders from, you know, in California, of course. I mean, what would you expect? Um, they're allowed to do whatever they want. They're allowed to do whatever they want. But these these uh, 
uh, police forces and, and these um, these mayors who are given the stand down order. I mean, there has to be some kind of repercussion. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah, has to be some kind of repercussion. What can Trump do as far as getting involved in you know the state? I mean, that's a tricky you know a tricky thing. I mean, do you want the Fed? We really don't want the Feds to be involved in local police departments. I mean, that's the whole thing. Obama started that. You know, we don't want the Feds to be involved. But if if it comes to a point where patriotic Americans just can't go and listen to somebody speak or can't just discuss their point of view without getting their head bashed in, then so be it. Then so be it. It needs to be done. I mean, uh, the feds need to come in. It needs to be done. You, you, you know, I, I look at it this way. I, I'm, I'm trying to picture this under Obama. Uh, would, for example, would I be comfortable with any, like, federal action under Obama um, and then apply it to, to Trump because I want to be consistent in my thinking. I, sure. I, I want to be a constitutionalist. I want to respect the Constitution. And, and that kind of guides my thinking. So uh, if there's any question, let's, let's go to the Constitution. That's our rule book. That's our manual. Bang. We have to follow that. And, and, and then I, I'm looking, trying to see what Trump is doing as well and, and all, all of this. So, you know, I'm going to be very consistent with this because if, if Donald Trump does something that is anti-constitution or outside of the constitution i would expect that us and others would call him on, on that as well um as we would with barack hussein obama or anyone in that position now that said um i believe and going back to your original earlier um uh, look i think that the seeds to what we're seeing here were planted by Obama, the Alinskyites, and, and everyone behind this. And by the way, we're talking with Chad. He's the head of something called the Insurgency Broadcast Network on YouTube. Subscribe to this channel. I mean, in Insurgency Broadcast Media, it is fantastic. His YouTube uh, videos, his videos are, are uh, 100%. But, and this, these are videos we watch. Go yeah. And, and back to the, uh, the Berkeley uh, situation, there was a tweet by the mayor who said the following, using speech to silence marginalized communities and promote bigotry is unacceptable. Hate speech is not welcome in our community. Um, and then there, there was other tweets that, that fall along that thread, but the, as you said, the, the Congress, uh, men and women, senators, to people inside the government, to people in positions of power in the private sector, are applauding, cheering the stuff, nothing condemning the violence. Uh, one Congresswoman from Florida called the pro- the riots yesterday a beautiful a beautiful sight or a beautiful thing. They are in the media, and even the former president is encouraging these things, um, encouraging the protests at the airport, encouraging you know people to and under the guise of stopping you know what they claim is hate speech, and, and it's just uh, it's sickening. But hopefully there will be an investigation. There's rumors around that there would there is an investigation into the mayor for giving a stand down order. Not confirmed yet. Um, let's continue talking about about this instance and this climate, this political uh, hostility that that we're in. To where even when you're walking down the street wearing a Trump sign in some cities, you're not safe, or wearing a Trump hat or T-shirt or showing support for him in any way, including interviews on TV. There's a few uh, trains of thought. Some think that Trump is watching this. And, you know, gathering evidence and doing things with the executive orders like 
using the Obama and Clinton recommendations on you know the seven states that they put the temporary temporary ban on Muslim countries that Trump's giving these people enough rope to to show themselves for who they really are, and then you know he'll turn it around and and find a way to fix it and also show the hypocrisy of uh, and the irony that's in that's in the left and this new radical left. And others are saying that he has taken a, a back seat and not done his job uh, when dealing with these protests. People are calling from anything from, uh, you know, National Guard to come in to, you know, they send the police into crackheads to, uh, you know, stop these people from not protesting, but from the, the violence that their uh, protest brings. If you had to, to, to put it in the way you're thinking, what, what do you think is going on at the, uh, you know, at the White House when they're dealing with these or looking at these uh, problems. Uh, well, right now, honestly, I think they don't. You know, Trump doesn't have his team together. He doesn't have his team together. He's not settled in yet. These riots are occurring. Um, I think Trump uh, deeply does want it to stop. I don't think he would have tweeted about UC Berkeley in particular uh, if he didn't want it to stop. Uh, he would have just do what Obama did and just wash his hands with it. You know, because Obama, he was a great order. He was a great order. He could have united people. He could have united and brought people together. He never did. He never did because he wants this kind of thing to happen. With Trump, at least he's sending the message out that this is not this is not going to go down anymore. And if you do this kind of thing, we're going to fund you. You're not going to receive federal funds. Why should they? Um, personally, I think uh, Trump has to directly talk to uh, you know local municipalities. He needs to talk to uh, states that are just allowing this to happen, to mayors, to governors, and get this in order. You know, he's a great deal maker. He can, he can set the stage for this. If they don't do it, he's going to do something about it. Whatever, you know, I think, I agree. uh, given, given time, when his team gets into place, when Sessions is set up in the Justice Department, I think Trump has the ability to discuss with these governors and mayors that if you're going to keep doing this, we're going to have a big problem. And maybe, you know, I, I still have my doubts because they are so, Anti-American to me. These uh, these may California itself is anti-American to me. Yeah, I mean, exactly. the the way they're running the state and letting things to happen. I don't think they're gonna. You know, I think they're still gonna want to do it. I think they want it to be done. I think um, this has been going on for a long time. I think these uh, local mayors and people in Washington, uh, leftists in Washington, want this to happen. I think that they would rather see America collapse. Than for Trump to succeed, and if these violent protests, if people gotta die, you know that they even like these all these leftists say, if people gotta die, then so be it. I think they are so off the meter that they're willing to risk everything. They're willing to let uh, people get killed. They're willing to let obviously they're willing to let their neighborhoods get back, uh, burnt down. Anytime you have people who are mayors saying, hey, let's give them room to destroy, here you go, you know then. There is something mentally uh, uh, disabled <laughs> with these exactly. people. Letting, yeah. it go, letting it happen, yeah. uh, giving them room to destroy. I don't think. Uh, I think they would rather see their whole city and town and and state burnt down before they give in to Trump. And that's unfortunate. And that's the scary thing. What, what does that lead to? That's well, going to lead to more violence. That's going to lead to, unfortunately, maybe, God forbid, a civil war in this country. And, and and there it is. I think that they're pining for a civil war I, I, at whatever cost. And I think you're exactly 100% correct in your assessment. Now, I, okay, so 
looking at the bigger picture, we know we've got the we've got the Alinskyite kind of the the Alinsky Saul Alinsky agenda, and, and people are sloughing this off as as if well no you know this it's not that organized the hell it's not man what we're seeing here to me is a very well organized well oiled well funded uh machine for example yesterday uh we, we you saw the milo uh was supposed to to speak and of course the protest that that originated there that there were some uh shall we say minor protests but all of a sudden, you see this black block. Now, black block is a tactic, uh, but it also represents a group of individuals come in, and that's when the destruction began. That's when the burning began. That's when all of the... the, the so, my question is, specifically, and, and I'll ask you this, because I know you're, you're a great researcher, you're a great independent investigative journalist, you're very effective in getting your message across. Who is behind this? Both, well, who is behind all of this? I, from the from the outermost to the innermost, who is behind this? You know, I think um, globalists, Republicans, and George Soros finally had something to come together for. Mm-hmm. Finally, had I think these shadow, shadow donors in the background funding these groups, especially George Soros, especially George Soros is uh, mainly responsible. These protesters are bought and paid for. I mean, they 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 show up every time Trump does anything. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, unless they go to sleep with their protest clothes and their signs and pop up some kind of time portal, everything is pre-organized, ready to go. When Trump signed the travel ban executive order, right when he did that, and this George Soros just hit that button because news sites, uh, applications, websites, had all these advertisements up, ready to go. And the second after he signed this executive order saying, Trump's lion's door on refugees, donate now. Donate now. There is absolutely, uh, you know, yeah, you call it conspiracy or whatever, but it's not a conspiracy to me because they've been trying to do this and they are funding these opposition groups. That's right. um, you know, Open Society Foundation are funding a lot of these people. They're trying to start a revolution in this country, uh, just like, you know, George Soros started a revolution in Ukraine with the Orange Revolution, right? That's right. Yeah. Now, what, what, what are they doing here in America? They're using, look at the Women's March, pink, pink everywhere. You know, they're trying to start, he's, obviously, I think he picked pink as the color of the revolution in America, but that's suitable for these snowflakes. Right. But I think they want to start a revolution. He's doing the same old game that he did in Ukraine and that uh, uh, a little bit that was done during the uh, Arab Spring. The same old game. I think George Soros absolutely is funding it. But now he has the status quo Republicans, these globalist Republicans, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, the donors behind them, the Cole brothers now. Yep. So anti-Trump, it's unbelievable that... They have, you know, partners across the aisle. If you want to call them Republicans, to me, you know, Koch brothers, John McCain, all these globalist Republicans are the same as the Democrat establishment. It's just one party. And I think they are working together to undermine Trump, finance the opposition groups, overthrow Trump. If they can't impeach him, God forbid, with all these violent protests, they're going to try to kill him. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, yeah, I do believe that his... Uh yeah, I, I believe that his life is certainly in jeopardy. You, you got Madonna saying, "Let's bomb the, you know, bomb the White House." Or I, I've thought about it. You've got uh, who is that uh, that idiot uh, comedian, director, movie star, Judd Judd Apatow. 
Yeah, that that guy. Um, I mean, it, it's amazing. And then, then to see they killed Trump, uh, uh, graffiti at UC Berkeley. I mean, this is the tolerant left or the all-inclusive left. What the heck? Um, they, yeah, they've lost all uh, credibility in that area yeah. with tolerance. I can't stand it. They they, they run around. Uh, first of all, they're on Twitter saying. Oh, I wish somebody would assassinate Trump. Hashtag say no to hate. Yeah, really, really. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, or, or they have their oh, uh, love Trump's hate sign while they're bashing you on the head with a bat. Yeah. I mean, these people have lost their minds. We live in an alternate reality. For some reason, they honestly believe. I mean, I don't think it's just. I think they honestly believe that words are worse than physical violence to these people. They honestly believe it. I mean. Because I always get responses saying, yeah, but Trump's doing the same thing. What do you mean he's doing the same thing? He's the, are we out on the street beating people up, burning down neighborhoods? Absolutely not. But for these, the way they were taught, generate, you know, generation after generation, the way they were taught is that free speech is more violent than physical violence. Mm. You know, Chad, um, you've done some great work here, by the way. The Pink Revolution, a plot, a plot to overthrow Trump, uh, that that was just posted, I think, yesterday. Folks, go to uh, Chad's uh, YouTube page, and that is uh, Insurgency Broadcast Network. It's, uh, subscribe. Subscribe. We all need to stick together in these times. Chad is on the cutting edge, on the front end of the investigative research of citizen journalists, and we have to applaud him, not just applaud him, but also to back him uh, and welcome him to the family, our family, of investigative journalists, and, and thank him for being part of this new media, this independent media. I don't, uh, Chad, I'm sorry, I don't want to take too much of your time, but we're, we're approaching a break here at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, um, I, we would like to get your take on, on just a number of other things that we're facing as well, uh, domestically. Because you've done a lot of great work here. Um, whether, whether it be, well, well, Joe, I mean, you and I spoke before the, before the show specifically about, about Trump, uh, about the, about the unrest, the civil unrest. Yeah, we're going to continue to talk about the, the civil unrest, the anti-Trump agenda. Yeah. Um, something that Chad wanted to also talk about was the leaks coming out of the That's White House. That's it. Dealing with Trump as well as policy challenges Trump will be facing. So when we come back, we're going to, to continue our interview with Chad from Insurgency Broadcast. Go to Insurgency Broadcast on YouTube and subscribe to his channel. We'll be right back with Chad B. from Insurgency Broadcast right after this. Stay with us. series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. 
T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Week Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. In these uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel-burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass-burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. So glad to have you tuning in to our broadcast tonight. Those people watching on YouTube, uh, th- thank you so very much, and thank you for your belief and trust in us. And please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Okay, just go to the Hagman and Hagman.com. That's our show webpage, or HagmanReport.com. That's for show prep and articles. But from there, you can connect to our official YouTube page. Subscribe. That raises our visibility. And also subscribe to our guest tonight, uh, uh, Insurgency Broadcasting Network, Chad, there. Uh, subscribe to his as well. He's got, he's done some great investigative work, uh, on his own. And, uh, he's really, he's, he's something, he's somebody that we watch. His videos we do watch. Now, folks, uh, look, Valentine's Day is not too far away. And if you've got that special someone in your life, your wife, your, your mother, your, your daughter, whatever, somebody that really is special to you, I've got this treat for you. Sherry's Berries. And I'm sure everyone 
if, as long as, if you've been on the planet, you know about Sherry's Berries. And just to tell you that this is, we do practice what we preach. We do buy what we endorse or buy what we talk about. And, and we do like what we uh, endorse. Certainly Sherry's Berries is one of them. I just want to open this box real quick here because, oh, hey, hang on. Now, if, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see this. Um, if you're, if you're watching, or if you're not, if you're just listening to this, well, too bad for you. But the, the most decadent fresh strawberries, chocolate covered strawberries. I mean, check that out. High def, uh, I'm sure you can get this on high def. Oh, they're fabulous. They're fresh. They come in, in just, just in this wonderful box and they're, they're, oh, they're just decadent. Uh, okay, one more. You, you want to see another one? This is their chocolate nut covered or chocolate, chocolate covered one. Uh, this is my wife's favorite here. She likes this one. And I'm not sure of the contrast, if you can see that, but what a fantastic fresh strawberry, folks. That's Sherry's Berries. And we, we've got an offer for you for the listeners of the Hagman and Hagman Report, just for you. We've got an offer for you. And by the way, this comes in a very nicely, uh, nicely tied box for that loved one, but uh, a special offer for all of the listeners of the Hagman and the Hagman Report, go to go to berries.com. That's berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. That's right, berries.com. And click on the microphone box in the top right-hand corner and type in Hagman, H-A-G-M-A-N-N. And here's what here's what will happen. You will get, the, the offer is this, the, freshly, the freshest of the fresh, freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99 plus shipping. But you can, and here's what we did, double the berries for just $10 more. Okay, by using our word or code word Hagman, it, it, these berries are decadent. They're fresh. They're sweet. They're irresistible. You can oh, choose berries dipped in tempting white milk, dark chocolate goodness. They're topped with uh, chocolate chips, decorative swizzles, and chopped nuts. Folks, guys, surprise her at the office, the workplace. Her coworkers are are sure to be just a little bit jealous, and she will be absolutely overjoyed. Sherry's Berries will deliver your gift fresh and on time, guaranteed, or your money back. This is what we use for clients, but this, more, most importantly, this is what we use for our wives and daughters and, and special, those people special in our lives. And let me tell you something. Uh, my wife got this box of Sherry's Berries, and she... Well, I think I think it took like 15 seconds, and uh, there was like two gone. Bam. I got to tell you, I I had one after the show last night, and it's a good thing I ate it when I was not around the box with the rest of them in there, because it was so good I did want more. I had the yeah, white absolutely. white and dark chocolate mix uh, on top of the strawberry, and that was delicious. But seriously, everyone I know are they're talking about Sherry's berries and about what a great gift this is for Valentine's Day. So, folks, one more time, go to berries.com. That's b-e-r-r-i-e-s. Okay, berries.com, and enter in the microphone box Hagman for that very special offer. Sherry's, or I'm sorry, berries.com, Hagman in the microphone box. Okay, Chad from Insurgency Broadcast Network. Let's, uh, let's get into a couple of things. We got leaks coming out of the White House, apparently. At least coming from somewhere. And we've got this war on guys and women in the alternative or shall I say the new independent media. What do you want to tackle first? Which subject? Uh, you know, as far as the leaks, uh, since you brought that up, now this, this is disturbing because right when Trump is beginning, right when he's beginning, he starts talking with leaders, talking with world leaders, and all of a sudden the transcripts are being leaked. 
Now, where are they being leaked from? And it's only meant to do one thing. It's meant to undermine Donald Trump and make to the America, give the perception to America that Donald Trump is crazy and doesn't know what he's doing, right? Some of the leaks that came out saying how Trump's going to send in troops into Mexico. And then you talk to the Mexican president, and he's like, no, that was never said. That was never said. But the media doesn't believe that. The media doesn't believe that because they know more than the two people who are actually on the call, right? <laughs> And, and, and obviously Trump did say that, and already Mexico, you know, obviously they're getting, they're not, they're not agreeing on, on much. Does Mexico want to build a wall on the border? Of course they don't. So if they have an opportunity to make Trump look bad, I don't think they would without a doubt, uh, without hesitation, uh, do that. So they, they, they deny that ever, that ever happened. But what the real issue is, who's leaking it? How are they getting these transcripts? Now, you have a hostile media who will do anything, will pay anything, uh, whether they're getting it from foreign leaders or paying somebody through, uh, from the White House to get these transcripts. They'll do anything to get their hands on it. They won't tell you the source, and then they'll just report it in their own way. But it's only meant to do one thing, and that's to undermine Trump, to make it look to the people that he's crazy, he doesn't know what he's doing. And it has nothing to do with policy. If you actually look at what they were talking about, Trump's actually fighting for the American people. Like with the call to Australia, um, right. uh, with the president of Australia, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but he, they, they say Trump didn't want to take in the refugees that Obama agreed. Australia doesn't even want the, why don't they want the refugees? <laughs> they don't want them, so they're gonna give them to us. And Obama's such a layover, he was just like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, bring them on in. And Trump said it was the worst deal ever. The worst deal ever. And you know what? And I agree with him 100%. 100%. But, you know, again, I don't, you know, that's something to worry about. Obviously, the media is going to go through anything, pay anything, do anything, uh, uh, just to hurt Donald Trump. They're not here to report. They're here to uh, hurt Donald Trump. And whoever's doing the leak, if it's coming from the Trump White House, he needs to get on top of that immediately. I, I, I agree. A good question, uh, to follow up with this is, uh, I forget who said this on our show, but what is going to happen? What what's the media's and the and the this extreme left reaction going to be when Trump actually does something that would make them mad? Instead of this fake outrage that we see at everything he he's doing, I guess the the immigration the temporary immigration ban would be a good example, except for the fact that it is a temporary ban. And as you said, the media is is reporting what they're told is is not reporting the truth. They do everything in their power not to report the truth. They're putting their own spin on it. But what if there is something Trump does in the near future that, you know, um, really provokes outrage from the left? Uh, real outrage, I guess. Because no, I believe a lot of this is provocateurs right now. No, absolutely, I agree. But, you know, God forbid if we go to war with another country. Because our mainstream media will be embedded with the enemy's military brigades. Reporting from the front lines, <laughs> you know, oh... Trump's, uh, I mean, they are, they are, they're gonna side with the enemy. That's how I, that, that, that's how I would see it. Uh, God forbid we do ever get in a war. Um, that's a dangerous situation when you don't have even a, a bit of, of patriotism coming from the left or, or the media that you're right. If something does happen or if we get into a conflict with another nation, they're gonna back up the other nation just because Trump, just because Trump. And that's, and that's something we should all be really worried about. But, um, at the end of the day, I think, um, after a couple years, uh, we're, we're gonna see how, how the media is gonna start to react because we could get into a big war. Because these globalists want a war. 
These globalists want a war, and they are embedded in countries who are going to try to pull us into a war. Uh, Iran, for instance, they were just launching ballistic missiles uh, just right. a couple days ago. And they're doing it to threaten Trump, but Trump is an Obama. Again, if Trump puts a red line, he's not going to do what Obama did and back away from that red line. And, you know, I think the media will absolutely be on the enemy's side, and I think the leftists uh, will begin their impeachment of Trump if he does any conflict with another nation, at least try to. Chet, let me get your opinion on this, because I've been following your channel for a while. Did you think, um, did you think Obama or the Obama regime believed in their wildest imagination that Trump would actually win the Oval Office? Um, the, the reason I'm asking you this, and I'll just give you a heads up on this, and you can you can take it uh, from here. But but here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that he believed that Hillary would win, um, and and then carry on, of course, his agenda. When when Trump got in, obviously, all of the things that Obama had done to sell out this country. Ah, no, no. I mean, Trump had to put a stop to it, whether it be the influx of, of uh, immigrants, uh, you know, illegals into this country, or the bad deals, all of the bad deals. And we're seeing this cultural whiplash, as Cho had termed it. But um, so, did you did you think that Trump, uh, or do you think that Obama had expected Trump to come in? I think he knew uh, Trump was going to win. Oh, really? I think he knew it. I mean, I think that he knew he was going to win. Uh, that's why he was campaigning harder than Hillary. You know, while Hillary Clinton was at home drinking with Uma Abedin, she had Obama uh, going around campaigning harder than even campaigning his own, uh, <laughs> going against Romney. Uh, I think he knew it was happening. Uh, he, he might have not wanted to admit it, but have you ever seen a sitting president campaign harder than the actual Democrat nominee or the nominee of a president? I, I mean, look at what George Bush yeah, I didn't see George Bush campaigning for McCain whatsoever. I know his poll numbers were low, but I think Obama went above and beyond than any regular president should go because I thought he, you know, thought Trump was going to win. Very interesting, and, so, and the, the, I kind of set you up on that because I noticed in your earlier uh, videos, and, and I agree with you on that. Uh, Obama's over the top uh, campaigning. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, and I, I saw a story uh, this week that said members of Hillary Clinton's campaign were blaming Obama for their loss, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, because he didn't do enough, I think was the excuse. But um, we saw how a hardy campaign telling illegal immigrants it's okay to vote, you're not going to be tracked down if you do. And I mean, just there was a, a, a number of different uh, things that he had, had done and the way he denounced Trump and says, you know, he's not going to be in this White House. He did go above and beyond uh, what other presidents do. Um, while we're still talking about this this anti-Trump climate, uh, both in the this, the population and in the the media and in the the government, um, one question I want to make sure we hit: Are we watching? You know, there's there's a lot of of sayings out there. First they was the first they laugh at you, then they mock you, then you win. We see that this the, the Democrats or the this extreme left can't use facts to win their argument because they don't stand by anything. We see that they have no recourse politically anymore, uh, just by their actions. Regardless of its provocateurs or protesters or the media, are they are they self-destructing, or are we seeing more of an of an organized? Uh, this is going to continue to be a problem during the Trump administration, or do you think this will be something that fizzles out in six months? Um, well, the way I 
I see it is the Democrat Party is in its lowest ranking since I believe um, the 1920s or 1930s as far as holding office locally, uh, statewide, and nationally. They're at the lowest they've ever been. I think they have no other option besides letting the violent left just take over because they are, I mean, mainstream Democrats, old school Democrats, I should say, have been leaving the Democrat Party. This leaves a bad taste in their mouth, seeing what's happening. Um, I think right now the only voice in the Democrat Party is uh, the violent left. I don't see them doing any, I don't see them condemning the violent leftists. I don't see them trying to bring back um, uh, Democrats who've left, like the labor union. I mean, you do have senators in Michigan, uh, like Senator Manchin, who, you know, wants to uh, work with Trump. Probably going to be one of the only senators there who does work with them. That's because he knows what's going on. The white working class has left the Democrat Party. Blue-collar workers, the labor unions, have left the Democrat Party. And that's due to a bunch of things. That's due to economic reasons, such as NAFTA, such as our... um, uh, TPP that uh, Obama was trying to push, and thank God that uh, uh, that Trump pulled us out of that mess. Um, I think it also has to do with the fact that they don't have any more facts. They just have feelings and emotions. They let Hollywood and leftists really be the prime voice in the country. You let uh, their one of their top nominees, Bernie Sanders, is a socialist, want this country to be like Denmark for some reason, <laughs> yeah. and. They, they don't have any voices out there who has their own mind. Who I do like, to be honest with you, is, is Tulsi Gabbard, uh, if you're familiar with this congresswoman. She's the only one who actually stands up to, to the party. She's a congresswoman from Hawaii. Um, she actually went and sat down with Bashar al-Assad in Syria on the behalf of the Democrat Party. They were, you know, they weren't happy about that. Right. And she did have a meeting with Donald Trump. For uh, you know, I believe some kind of meeting or interview. So she she's not um, you know playing uh, ball with the Democrats too much. So there might be some voices there, but you know I think they're just going to keep rolling down this hill. They're not speaking out against the violent leftists. Uh, they're going to become more violent. I think we're finally seeing the full transition into socialist communists for the Democratic Party. Um, they're, they're 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 anti-American. They burn too many flags. To raise the American flag. Oh, they become all of a sudden so patriotic, right? Uh, when Trump becomes president, all of a sudden you see Keith Olbermann wrapping himself in the American flag yeah. <laughs> on, some, on some GQ uh, cover. They're so, you know, they've cried wolf too many times, and um, you know, we all know, we all know that the vinyl left, especially a lot of the young people, hate this country from its founding. Hate this country from its founding. Mm. Want to see it destroyed. They believe it's racist from its founding. Uh, they want to make sure that the white working class. And it's not even about race. You know, when I was growing up, I never saw anything in classes of race like this. It was just common sense uh, to me. I, I didn't see it that way. But since they've created this identity pol- politics to win elections because of their assumptions of the demographics in this country, they lost their minds. They said, okay, you know what? We don't need policy. We need demographics, and that's it. Nancy Pelosi, she was on Capitol Hill doing her uh, a protest with Chuck, uh, fake tears Chuck Schumer <laughs> um, uh, regarding Trump's travel ban. 
And she brought on this congressman who was who wanted to speak to the crowd. The mic wasn't working. That was funny how Trump pointed that out. Mike wasn't working, but I think once they did get it to work, Nancy Pelosi was just whispering in his ear, tell him you're Muslim. Just tell him you're Muslim. Forget the, <laughs> forget any proper message. Just let them know you're Muslim so they know the Muslims are on our side. It's all identity politics, race politics, and, gender politics. And I'm glad you brought that up because there are a lot of, uh, a lot of people, even in the independent media, who refuse that, that, uh, who don't want to deal with that identity politics narrative. It's interesting to see the, the sides forming and the narratives being massaged. I'm glad you brought that up. And you're right. Uh, yeah, just tell them you're Muslim. Just, <laughs> oh, my word. Well, uh, okay. In, in the, uh, with, with the, uh, uh, politics in DC inside the Beltway, gotta ask you about this. Um, you, you're, you're seeing, we're seeing appointments being made in the Democrats, uh, AWOL in these, uh, from the Senate Finance, the Senate mm-hmm. Judiciary meetings. What's up with that? I mean, I, aside from the obvious, my question is, what's up with that? They feel like if they associate with any cabinet members uh, that Trump's putting up, they're going to get, um, you know, hit by the violent left. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. I believe that they won't even sit down with Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court nominee, uh, for Trump, Chuck Schumer, and I believe Pelosi. They're not even going to meet with him. They're not even going to meet with him. All right, because God forbid they get millions and millions of death threats in the mail from their own party. If they don't stand up to their own party, if they don't stand up to these people, then that's it. I, I, it's going to collapse. Their party's transforming. I feel like they're already done. It's in shambles. Yeah. But if Chuck Schumer wants to keep his gravy train going and the establishment going in the Democrat Party, he's going to have to stand up to these violent leftists who are, you know, they don't really care about the establishment too much. They just want to go full-on socialist. And whoever can do it and get it done, that's fine. They've, they've taken over. I mean, I believe... The Democrat establishment is more willing to work with Trump than the violent Democrat minority that's right now making uh, uh, themselves the majority in the Democrat Party. Um, but they don't have the spine to stand up to them, and they want to keep their gravy train going, and they're the ones funding them. The violent, I mean, that's how they get their things done. They have to rile their party up. They have to get them so angry. And then, like I said, right when they did the uh, travel ban, they put up all these ads, donate now, give us more of your college money, we'll impeach Trump, and then we'll make college free. That's that's not going to happen. They don't have any platform that makes any common sense to any average Americans, and that's why they keep losing and losing. But they have to keep losing. It can't just be that Trump won, because Russia, right? It was Russia's fault. So they have to lose... Um, in two years, in 2018, they have to lose again. They have to keep losing to get the message. And by that time, are they going to get their act together? You know, I don't have any more confidence or hope for that party, honestly. Honestly. But it's not even, it, it, I mean, I understand the, the partisan angle of this, but I think, uh, or would you agree that we've gone from the two-party system of politics now to just a basically a uniparty that is of the globalists now uh, the, well I don't want to make such broad sweeping statements but yet I am uh, but we've got the globalists and then we've got the the people who are attempting to do right by the constitution of the United States 
Okay. I, I don't. I don't even know what to call that dynamic, other than that. Yeah, I mean, open borders, um, uh, unlimited immigration, mm. the destruction of the nation state looks where that looks like where the Democrat Party wants to go. Uh, you're right, not just the Democrat Party. Obviously, the uh, establishment, the Republican Party, and the establishment of the Democrat Party, they're the same party. They are the globalist party. Um, the Never Trump movement um, basically was doing the same thing that the Democrats were doing. Right now, a lot of them are just holding their nose when it comes to Trump. Um, but give it some time, and give it some time, and once Trump really starts getting, especially uh, foreign policy-wise, because these globalists, how do they achieve their goals? By um, by completing their agenda global. Now, in that case, you have to worry about John McCain. You have to worry about Lindsey Graham. They're trying to corner Trump on foreign policy uh, to make sure that they continue that New World Order globalist agenda, and they'll work with the Democrats to get it done. And right now, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It is a one-party system with just a couple blocks in the Republican Party, not at all in the Democrat, who actually want America first, who actually care about this country and not about the uh, New World Order that was created after World War II, basically. You know, um, we have about three minutes left or so, and, and before we are at the top of the hour break, um, you talked about the, the policy challenge Trump, Trump faces. The, you talked about him not having his cabinet together. Um, Steve Bannon, I've been hearing a lot about him lately. Many people, uh, I mean, the rhetoric from the news and from the left is that he's, you know, some, you know, KKK leader, white nationalist or whatever. But that's all, uh, unfounded and, and just, you know, rhetoric. But some say he has a, an authoritarian complex. And I'm not too familiar with him. What, what do you think? You know, I wasn't familiar with Steve Bannon, um, you know, until he, to be honest with you, until he uh, took over Trump's campaign. Um, what I've heard of him and what I've read about him, I don't see him as a, oh, a white nationalist like they're talking about. Right. He's a patriotic, America first um, uh, businessman who knows that the media, what they're trying to do, who knows about the manipulation in this country. And Trump did the right thing to bring him close to his side because Bannon, Bannon, he doesn't affiliate as far as uh, with these establishment folks. Doesn't affiliate with them all. He can't stand the establishment. He can't stand the media, and he's been fighting against it. And he's good at it. He's good at it. He helped Trump win the White House. I agree. And everybody was so shocked that oh my God, he's bringing him into the Oval Office. What do you, what do you think he's going to do? So I really think that Steve Bannon is, is a, a very good, effective, effective uh, strategist to have on Trump's side. Now let me ask you this. Do you think what Trump has put forward in executive orders and announced how he's going to uh, do different things, do you think that those are his ideas or do you think they're brainstorming from, uh, you know, Kelly and Conway to, to Bannon and to the people that he surrounds himself with? Well, I think he is brainstorming with Steve Bannon and so on, but before Steve Bannon took over his campaign, Trump was speaking about these things. Yep. You know, uh, before Bannon became the campaign manager, he was speaking about, about these things. You actually go back, I mean, Trump's been saying the same thing since <laughs> the 70s and 80s. He's been talking about the same issues. Um, Trump is his own man. Uh, you can't really uh, uh, teach an old dog new tricks, especially somebody like Trump. Um, I think Trump has strong opinions, but I think he's uh, uh, going to take advice from the right people. 
from the right people. And that's what they hate. They want Trump to take advice from the idiots who've been ruining this country. And since Trump doesn't do that, oh my God, oh my God, he's, he's a chaotic, he's deranged. Um, I think Trump is his own man. He's going to make his own decisions. Uh, I think Steve Bannon is the right person to have next to him to, uh, to basically structure those decisions for him. Absolutely. Um, we only have about a minute left. Uh, Sean Spicer, the press secretary, is that a good fit in your mind? A lot of people seem no. to not like him. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think he is. I think he's giving the press too much leverage. Uh, I think, you know, I, I was watching it. He's letting him ask uh, question after question after question. Um, you know, I think he's a little bit too, the image of him, I think he's too antsy. Like, he's a little bit too antsy. I think somebody a little bit more uh, calm, willing to show. He's not that bad. Don't get me wrong. But there's something about him when he speaks. He's too... Just, just nitpicky. I, I don't really think he's a good fit for press secretary. Honestly, um, I thought he could have done better. I like, uh, I like Laura Ingram. I like some of the outside of the establishment folks uh, that he could have brought in to be press secretary. Um, but he's not doing that bad of a job. If he gets better, then I'll support him. All right. Uh, th- thank you, Chad B. Insurgency Broadcasting Network on YouTube. Follow him. Subscribe to his channel, folks. This guy's got his finger on the pulse of what is happening in the multiverse of social media. Chad, thank you so much for for appearing on our program tonight. Oh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. You come back, okay, because we have a lot more to talk about. You come back sometime. Oh, you got it. All right, brother. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back after this with Clint Hill and Lisa McCubbin. Um, They are the co-authors of a number of books dealing with the five presidential administrations that Mr. Hill was a Secret Service member on. We'll be right back. Greenovative. Go to agmanreport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. But what Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a bang, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, six AA batteries off the grid when other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night. Go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Perhaps you're a business out there, a small business. Would you like to extend the reach of your business? I bet you would. Would you like to to have the same opportunities as companies such as Omaha Steaks and Pro Flowers and Casper Mattress and some of the bigger companies out there? Would you like to have that same power? Advertise on our program. Go to HagmanandHagman.com or send an email to opportunities at HagmanandHagman.com. If you go to HagmanReport.com and HagmanandHagman.com, there's a link where you can, you can, you can, it's a big red box. You'll see it. You'll see it. Click on that link. And go ahead and read the benefits that we have created for you. I think it's I think it's a fabulous opportunity.
investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified, accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We got a special treat for you this segment, this edition. Um, in fact, this is so special. We've been able to talk our uh, our network into dropping the bottom break, so we have a full hour, full fifty six minutes with our two guests. And uh, I have so much respect for both of these individuals, and in particular, Mr. Clint Hill. Now, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough like me to remember the scenes from November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas, when when President Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza. Now, last March, I had the occasion to, to tour Dealey Plaza for the first time, but my first... Uh, uh, my first memory of that, of course, I mean, my memories of that forever etched in my mind that that day in 1963, I was a young, very young man, but, um, my first memory of our guest Clint Hill was an appearance that he made on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. I believe it was 60 Minutes Overtime. It was in 1975. Uh, he was, it was right after, um, he was, uh, uh, he had a, he had to quit the Secret Service. And I remember the emotion of that, brief interview that was broadcasting. I think you can find it on YouTube. And I, I, in fact, that day I was watching with my mom and dad, and uh, I just, I was over there one Sunday night, and I mean, that really got to me. But, But our guests tonight are two individuals, Clint Hill, a man, a Secret Service agent, who served under five U.S. presidents, uh, presidential administrations. He was Jack, Jackie Kennedy's personal, uh, Secret Service agent. He joined the Secret Service when there was only 269 agents in the, in the entire Secret Service Bureau, 40th, I believe, in the presidential, uh, uh, protection detail. And, of course, he was assigned to Jackie Kennedy after Eisenhower and then uh, a little bit disappointed. I'm going to let uh, Lisa and uh, Clint talk about this, but but nonetheless, he, he ended up serving in addition to uh, Eisenhower and Jackie Kennedy and, of course, Dallas. He ended up serving a total of five presidents. And he, he, he with Lisa McCubbin, uh, have three books, Five Presidents, My Extraordinary Journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And then two other books, Mrs. Kennedy and Me, that came out in 2012, and Five Days in November, that came out in 2014. 
And it's interesting, he met Lisa uh, McCubbin, who's also joining Mr. Hill. Uh, Lisa McCubbin, she's an award-winning journalist, number one New York Times best-selling author. She collaborated with Clint Hill to write his very poignant and powerful memoirs. And in fact, uh, I think met Clint Hill back in 2009. Mr. Hill never really spoke about his service until Lisa McCubbin said, hey, let's talk about this. And three books later, here we are. So it is my humble, distinct honor to present to our audience. And we've got listeners all the way from uh, Germany listening live. want to say hello to you. Uh, Germany, France, uh, I can't count the countries all the way into the United States listening right now. want to welcome everyone, but this in particular, welcome uh, uh, Lisa McCubbin and uh, Clint Hill. How are you? How are you both? Fine. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. We're doing fine. Well, I'm going to start out with a question, if I'm, if I may. Um, <laughs> there's, I mean, where to start? But by the way, folks, Clint Hill's website, ClintHillSecretService.com, and Lisa, her website is LisaMcCubbin.com. In the show description, we have the links to their various websites. They're also on Facebook and Twitter, but. Uh, uh, what? Uh, let me just ask this, uh, uh, and we can start wherever you want. But I'm just kind of curious. Uh, how did Lisa? How did you get Clint Hill, who I saw that day in 1975, so racked with emotion, unable to really talk about what happened in Dallas? How did you get him to open up about his life of service under five administrations? Well, it happened over a period of several months. Um, I first met him in August of 2009. I was actually writing a book with another former agent named Gerald Blaine, who was a longtime family friend of mine, and we collaborated on a book called The Kennedy Detail. And uh, Jerry Blaine had been one of uh, the agents on Kennedy's Secret Service Detail, but he had been on the midnight shift during the assassination. So he wasn't present during the assassination. And as we were writing the book, I said to him, you know, as a writer, I really, I feel like I need to talk to somebody who was there. And he said, well, really, the only person you should talk to is Clint Hill, but he doesn't talk to anybody. And uh, Jerry had been friends with him for a long time, but he knew that Clint had really kind of dropped out of society. Um and hadn't really kept up with his friends, but he contacted him and mentioned the book, and at first Clint didn't want to have anything to do with it at all, but um, Jerry convinced him that I was trustworthy, that he'd known me for a long time, and so Clint agreed to meet with me in Washington, D.C. for two hours at the Hay Adams Hotel, and um, at that time he he was a completely different man than he is today, I will say, he, um, he gave me two hours, didn't really share too much with me other than what I could have learned on the Internet. Um, but I did see that there was still some a lot of emotion that was buried there. And um, he, um, the astonishing thing that he told me that day was that he had never talked about the assassination with anyone other than that interview with Mike Wallace in 1975. And now this was 2009. So... Um, he, you know, he he really was struggling with it still. So he made one mistake that day, though. <laughs> At the end of the interview, you know, I'm I'm a reporter by nature, and I said I may have some follow up questions as I'm writing the book. Could I have your phone number in case I need to call you? 
well, that was his mistake. He gave me his phone number. And so I called him, and I called him, and I called him. And little by little, he would um, tell me more. And I could see as our conversations went on that burden lifting off of his shoulders. And after several months, I think he, you know, he really grew to trust me. And he finally called me one day and said, all right, I'll just tell you the whole damn story. <laughs> and he went on for about two hours, and I was scribbling furiously. But that's how it it all began. Oh man, well that's a great story. And folks, I would urge everyone uh, if you, if you if you're like me and you you like history, uh, the three books that uh, Lisa McCubbin and Mr. Clint Hill had uh, co-authored, Mrs. Kennedy and Me. Five Days in November, and then, of course, Five Presidents, My Extraordinary Journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, and Ford. What tremendous reads. And, and just think about this, folks. Um, Mr. Hill is such an iconic, um, I mean, the the history that he has witnessed, the history that, that America has witnessed, even through his eyes in these books, and as uh, Miss McCubbin has really assisted in lying out, it's just fantastic. So it's rich in history. Um, so let me go back, and uh, you've given so many talks, uh, Lisa and Mr. Hill. Uh, you you began your Secret Service. Uh, you started in, in the Secret Service under Eisenhower, and uh, is that true? And, and then Eisenhower was your first presidential detail. Yes, that's correct. I started out in 1958. Okay. I had been a special agent in counterintelligence for the government, working with the Department of the Army. And then when it was time to get out, I decided I uh, wanted to do something similar. Secret Service was very small, and so I chose that agency to apply to. I didn't get in right away because there were just no vacancies, but finally a guy retired, and I got his spot. And that was during the Eisenhower administration, and within a year... I was permanently assigned to the White House, signed to protect President Eisenhower. And there, uh, apparently, you spent a lot of time on the golf course, as I understand it. Uh, but uh, uh, the transition between Eisenhower and then Kennedy, that had to be a, a real kind of a uh, whiplash, to use a term that we use here often, kind of a, a different, uh, a whole different playing field. Well, it is. All transitions are uh, very difficult to work with and handle. It's good to change from one to the next, but that one was quite difficult. Eisenhower was 70 years old. He was a grandfather. Kennedy was 43. His wife, they had had a young daughter born in 1956, 57, and now she was just three years old, and his wife, who was only 31, was pregnant. And so we had a completely different situation on our hands when we began protecting the president, Mrs. Kennedy. Right, right. And, and, you know, when I heard your other interviews and, of course, your books, I, I found it fascinating that when you were called and and uh, they assigned you not to Jack Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy, but to Mrs. Kennedy, you kind of, you weren't too pleased with that. You, I was very I was rather angry, disgusted, disappointed, because I knew that uh, all the action always was with wherever the president was or whoever it was. Right. I was going to be saddled with the protection of the first lady. Well, in the past, I had agent friends who had worked with Bess Truman, had worked with Mamie Eisenhower, 
They watched fashion shows, tea parties, and canasta games. And that wasn't what I really had in mind. I wanted to be where there was the real action, and now I was going to be uh, saddled with that particular job. And I had to accept it. There was my choice, but it was reluctantly that I went over to meet Mrs. Kennedy just two days after the election in 1960. But it turned out to be the best assignment in the Secret Service. Without a doubt, it did turn out to be the very best assignment. Well, tell us a little bit more because to me this is fascinating. Uh, you, uh, uh, wow, the Kennedys, I suspect had, had a really tight family time and you get into detail in your books and I would, again, I would urge everyone to go to Mr. Hill's website, ClintHillSecretService.com, Lisa McCubbin's website, LisaMcCubbin.com, follow him on Twitter and Facebook as well, Twitter that is, uh, at Clint Hill underscore Secret Service and at Lisa underscore McCubbin uh, and Facebook as well, by the way. But having said that, and but definitely grab a hold of their books for a rich period of history. But describe, if you if you don't mind, the family oriented life of the Kennedys and your position in that. Well, we were thrust into a situation where the Kennedys had a regular schedule. It was spend. Uh, uh, on all summer, starting usually late May and into uh, September up at Cape Cod, and then in September they'd go down, the President and Mrs. Kennedy would go down to Newport to spend time with her mother and stepfather. And then they'd come back to Minusport for Thanksgiving. And then Christmas, New Year's, and Easter, they'd go down to Palm Beach. But up in Minusport, the entire Kennedy family would be together. That meant Ambassador Joe Kennedy and his wife Rose, Robert Kennedy, his wife Ethel, and all of their kids, Eunice Kennedy Shriver and her husband, Sergeant Shriver, and their children, uh, Gene Smith and her husband, Steve, and their family. Uh, Teddy Kennedy was there at a place near the Kennedy compound. And so that entire group was together constantly. And we had to sort out things as to what our responsibility was, who we were protecting, and we had some difficulty because... We would set a car up for use by the president. It was a Lincoln convertible, and we all we didn't have any problem in the past. We didn't just leave the keys in it because it was inside a secure perimeter. But with Kennedy's, for example, Eunice, she'd get in the car and just drive off like it was her own car. But it was our car that we were going to use for the president. And so we had different kind of problems like that. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the water because every day, they would go out on the water around 10 o'clock in the morning. And they would spend most of the day out there, lunch out there, and everything. That meant Mrs. Kennedy would water ski, the president would swim, he loved to sail, there'd be a sailboat out there, and the press were there in numbers and boats trying to get whatever information they could, number of pictures. We had to try and keep them away, at least give the president, Mrs. Kennedy, and the rest of the family significant room in North Carolina to have some kind of a a life, and so it was uh, quite a challenge. I, wow, I can imagine. Uh, I, I love some of the stories you recount, uh, both in, in your book, but also in interviews about uh, the, the, well, the different, uh, the, just the different things that happened in the daily life of, of of a president, and how from Eisenhower to to Ford, how many different things, how things changed, and everything. My goodness. Um, as we go through the administrations, and again, I would recommend everyone grab a hold of all three of their books, uh, including 
the five presidents, my extraordinary journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. But with the Kennedys, such a transition from Eisenhower, as you mentioned, grandfather, uh, didn't really like to press the flesh versus Kennedy liked to get out and press the flesh. And of course that had to create like a nightmare for you, you and your, your agents. Uh, wow. That was difficult because as you say, President Eisenhower was not a political man. He came into the presidency. He was sought by both parties, decided to run as a Republican, but he didn't like to go out and press the flesh, get amongst the crowds, whereas Kennedy, if he saw a crowd of two, he was going over to shake hands. Yeah, and that kind of, because I'd like to move this really to cover the entire spectrum of uh, of your career. I'm not even sure. Mr. Hill, are, is anyone besides you, did, has anyone besides you covered that span of presidents? I, I don't think. Oh, oh yes, sir. Uh, my First boss at the White House, Jim Rowley, he uh, he covered more presidents than I did. He was there with uh, Roosevelt and Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy. Oh wow! Scott. Okay, okay, yeah. Into I... the Nixon administration. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, 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 that's interesting. All right. Um, well, as we go through, well, well, tell me this: what was one of your fondest memories? And I've I've gotten ever since we. Put out that you, that you were going to be on tonight's show. Uh, I've gotten so many emails from people. In fact, one person in France, thank you so much, Constance in France, wanted me to ask you this question. Um, and I guess this would be a proper time to do it. Uh, what's your favorite memory from uh, Jacqueline Kennedy and and or Jack Kennedy? What's your favorite memory at that time? The, the happy memory, the good stuff. Uh, when you when you were on their details, the happiest times that we had were when uh, President Mrs. Kennedy and the children were all together, and usually up at the Cape or down in Palm Beach, and they had the opportunity to really just be a family. Uh, that specifically would happen when we were out on the water, for example. Uh, Caroline loved to swim; she was very good at it. She would dive off the presidential yacht into her father's arms, and was out in the water swimming. Mrs. Kennedy was a great swimmer herself. She loved to water ski. She'd be out there when we went to Europe in 1962. She brought Caroline along and she began to teach her how to water ski. And she got in a lot of trouble for the press for that because they had no safety equipment. And she had Caroline up on the skis with her. And I know in the London uh, press really told her, don't do that, Mrs. Kennedy. Please don't take the risk of injuring Caroline. And so it got to be kind of a problem. But uh, the best times were when they were all together as a family, when they were so happy when they were in that situation. Understood. And that's one of the reasons um, Clint actually agreed to write our first book, Mrs. Kennedy and Me, is he, he said there had been so much written about her that just wasn't true, um, written by friends of friends or people that, you know, didn't really know her. And what he saw um, was this family that really cared about each other, and he wanted to write that down for history and let people know that um, – that Jack Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy really did adore each other, despite you know all the rumors that persist. Wow. Okay. And Lisa, I'm going to defer to you to, to some of these questions because you know, folks, uh, we're talking. I'm seriously, we're talking to a, a historic legend uh, in Mr. Hill. Uh, of course, 
memories, seared into my memory, of course, is, is the the horror, horrible day in, in 1963 where um, the gentleman climbing on the back of the limousine, that's who we're talking to. Okay, that is who we're talking to, and that's how that's how many people will remember him. But his career, his experiences, so much more than that. The rich history, so much more. And Lisa McCubbin has brought this out, and together they've 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 really written some fantastic, three fantastic books about this era and, and expanding on this. So, Lisa, I'm going to defer to you uh, in some questions as it. Uh, because you've done some, you've done great jobs with this uh, with. Uh, uh, answering questions and kind of directing uh, the, the narrative through the history of Clint Hill. I'm going to turn it over to you to pick up, especially like where, especially that time period in Dallas. Uh, I want to be very respectful of this. This is not a, this is not a who shot who show type thing. This is about what Mr. Hill felt, and I, I feel you could draw him out a lot more, or draw the uh, emotion out a lot, lot more, uh, a lot better than we can. So. Sure. Well, please say when when I first met him, um, you know, as I said, he couldn't talk about it and didn't want to talk about it, but um, then he started to. And um, when we would go out in public and he would tell the story, it was very difficult at first. It was very painful. And it still is. You know, you can still feel the emotion from him, but um, he said that it does get easier and better for him to address it and to talk about it. So, um so, Clint, why don't you just tell us what, you know, first of all, why did you, um, why did that trip to Texas occur? Well, it was decided in the spring of 1963. Uh, President Kennedy met with uh, Vice President Johnson and Governor Connolly down in El Paso, Texas. They had a meeting, and they decided that in order to win the election of 1964, they were going to have to take two of the large states in the south to get significant electoral votes to win the election. And so they selected Florida and Texas. And so the weekend of November 16, 17, and 18, President Kennedy went into Florida. He went to uh, Palm Beach, Cape Canaveral, Tampa, and then Miami. In Tampa, they had a 26-mile motorcade. And the advance agent was uh, Gerald Wayne. And he had asked the agents assigned them to uh, ride up in the back of the presidential vehicle during the entire motorcade because it was warm and humid that day, and he knew that they'd never last 26 miles running on the ground. And so uh, he assigned them up there in a permanent position. About halfway through, President Kennedy turned around. He noticed that these two agents were there. The crowd had dropped off a little bit, and he reached forward. He tapped the agent in the right front seat in the shoulder and said, to Floyd, he said, uh, Will you get those Agony charlatans off the back of the car, please? Now, we didn't have any idea what he meant by Agony charlatans, but we knew what he meant, get off the back of the car. So they did eventually get off the back of the car when they were able to do so. When the motorcade finished, he came to the advance agent and the supervisor and said, look, if you if the agents are up in the back of the car like that, it's going to appear to the general public that there's something between them and myself. I cannot afford that to happen. If that is going to be the case, I couldn't get elected to a kitchen. Said so from now on, unless it's an absolute emergency, don't have agents posted up on the back of the car. Now, nothing was written about it. It was just words passed down that that's the situation that would continue from that point on. 
And that was just several days before you flew to That was on Monday, uh, November 18th, 1963. And so then on November 21st, we left Washington to go to Texas. It was going to be a three-day trip, the 21st, 22nd, 23rd. We were going to go to San Antonio, Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas, Austin, and the LBJ Ranch. And then we were going to fly back to Washington in time for John Jr.'s uh, third birthday on the 25th of November. And why were you there, Clint? I was there because Mrs. Kennedy was going to make this trip. She came to me and told me she wanted to make this trip, that she, in 1960, was unable to contribute significantly to the president's uh, candidacy because she was pregnant with John. But this time she was going to do everything she could to help him get reelected. And so she was going to start by going on this trip to Texas. And that's the reason I was on the trip, was because of Mrs. Kennedy. She was my responsibility. And so what was the reception like when you first got to your first stop there in San Antonio? We had an amazingly large number of people show up. They were crowds were very, very large. They were very enthusiastic and exuberant. And they were very, very friendly. And this was the same situation all the way through San Antonio, on over into Houston, same situation. And then finishing in Houston, we went on Air Force One and flew over to Carswell Air Force Base near Fort Worth. And went into Fort Worth, got in there at 11.05 at night. It was raining. The crowds at Carswell were large. Whole families were there with their children. And I thought, boy, why are these people out here with their children in the rain at 11 o'clock at night? It seemed rather strange. And then I thought, you're getting kind of jaded, Clint Hill. You've been around the president too long. You don't remember that this is probably the only opportunity that family's ever going to have to see a president up close and personal. And so it was understandable. But as we went into the city and approached the Texas Hotel, there were thousands of people outside the hotel. We had a difficult time getting into the hotel itself. There are photographs that will show you that. Mm-hmm. And so, so you ended up in Fort Worth late at night, and then the next morning you were going to fly from Fort Worth to Dallas in Love Field, which doesn't make a lot of sense. You no, could you could not have driven there. Fly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we could have. We could have driven there faster. We were going to the trademark in Dallas, and we were leaving the Hotel Texas in Fort Worth. It would have taken us less time to drive directly to the trademark. We had to drive from the hotel to Carswell, get an Air Force One, taxi, take off, fly, approach, land, get off the aircraft at Love Field, then get in cars and go through the entire city of Dallas to get to our destination. The reason that it was done that way was not because we wanted it. It was because the politicians wanted a photograph of President and Mrs. Kennedy coming off the rear of Air Force One in Dallas. And that's what they got. And so, uh, I mean, it was rather strange. We had been in Fort Worth. We take off. We land in uh, in Dallas. President Mrs. Kennedy come off and go through the usual receiving line. And at the first people in the receiving line were Vice President Mrs. Johnson. Well, they had just said goodbye to them 10 minutes before over in Fort Worth. So, I mean, it's obvious that it wasn't, you know, it was strictly a political, political setup. Right. All for all for the photo op, right? That's right. And so you had a great reception at Love Field, and then you get in the cars and head into downtown Dallas. The reception at Love Field was large. The president saw the numbers of people there. He immediately went over to them, started shaking hands, 
Mrs. Kennedy normally doesn't do that, but she did in this case. We finally got him into the cars, and we had flown our cars in, special cars, for this motorcade. <clears throat> it was Secret Service car 100X. It was an open, tiered, stretched uh, Lincoln. It had a capability of having a bubble on it, uh, but that was only to be used. These were President Kennedy's directions. That bubble was only to be used in the event of adverse weather such as rain or snow, or if it was so windy it would affect Mrs. Kennedy's hair. <laughs> Other than that, the bubble was to be off, and the bubble was off. So it had been raining in Dallas, but as soon as it was determined that that was stopping, uh, they took the bubble off, and that was standard procedure. wasn't anything special new for Dallas. <clears throat> So we got them in the car. We started into downtown Dallas. We had to get down to Main Street, where the majority of people were, because they wanted this maximum exposure motorcade. The purpose of the trip was to get as many people to see President and Mrs. Kennedy as possible. And so we got down to Main Street, and the crowds were real heavy, uh, 10, 15, 20 deep on each side of the street. Uh, the driver of the presidential vehicle was keeping the car farther to the left as you drove down the street to keep the president, he was in the right rear, away from the crowd. That put Mrs. Kennedy right up next to the crowd on the left-hand side. I would get off my position, which was on the running board of the car, immediately behind the president's called the follow-up car. I would run up, get on the back of the car, and be as close to Mrs. Kennedy as I could to prevent anything from happening to her. And I did this four or five times as we traveled down Main Street. Now, I knew the president didn't want us up there. But I also knew what my responsibility was, and I also knew that if he asked anything or said anything, I'd be able to explain it to him. I had no fear of that whatsoever. So then we got down to Houston Street toward the end of uh, Maine. We had to turn right, because we had to get on the Stemmons Freeway to get us out to uh, the trademark. And we took one, uh, just drove one block on Houston, and then had to go left on Elm Street. And that put us right in front of a building called the Texas School Board Depository. Now, the crowds had really dropped off. There weren't many people in that area compared to how many there had been along Main Street. We had been, as agents on the follow-up car, we had been surveying the buildings as we traveled down the street. Most of the buildings had windows open. There were people hanging out of windows. There were people on, board, on fire escapes, on balconies, wherever they could be to get a better uh visual of President Mrs. Kennedy. There were two or three windows open on the Texas School Book Depository. But we saw nothing that looked dangerous or a problem for us. And we approached that. We had to make a very sharp left-hand turn onto Elm Street. The cars, we had to slow way down. We've been running 10 to 12 miles per hour. Now we had to go very, very slow to make this turn. And as we started to straighten out on Elm, which was going down toward a triple underpass underneath the railroad line. And so the roadway was uh, kind of slanted. We were about 150 feet from the entrance from Houston. I was scanning the area to my left and straight ahead at that overpass. And all of a sudden I heard an explosive noise over my right shoulder. came from the rear. I started to turn toward that noise, as did all the other agents. 
but I only got as far as the back of the president's car because I saw what happened. I saw the president grab at his throat and start to fall to his left. I then realized this was a gunshot. At first, when I first heard the noise, I didn't think it sounded like a gunshot, but that was probably because there was an echo in that area because of the buildings and the underpass. And so I then jumped from my position and started to run toward the presidential vehicle with the intent of getting up on the top of the back of it to form a shield there to prevent anything further from happening to either President or Mrs. Kennedy. Uh, as I jumped off the follow-up car, there was a motorcycle officer immediately to my left. I had to get between him and the follow-up car, which meant there was a lot of noise in that area. So later the agents told me there had been a second shot at that time. I didn't even hear it because of the noise of the engines. Then as I approached the presidential vehicle, I was just about there, and there was another shot that rang out. This one I not only heard, I felt it, because it hit the president in the head. At that time, he had fallen farther to his left. His head was down, slanted somewhat, uh, in a downward position. And the bullet entered in the rear of the head, kind of low in the rear, and then exited just above the right ear and blew a portion of the skull there forward, still attached to the skull, but materially erupted out of that wound, blood, brain matter, bone fragments. They got all over me, all over Mrs. Kennedy, all over the back of the car. When that happened, I was able to get a hold of the handhold on the car and get myself started to get up on the trunk. And just as I did that, she came out of the seat and climbed up on the back of the trunk from the seat position. She was trying to reach some of the material that had come out of the president's head. She didn't even know I was there. So I got a hold of her and I put her in the back seat. When I did that, uh, the president's body fell to its left with his head ending up in her lap. The right side of his face was up. I could see that uh, his eyes were fixed. I could see there was a hole in the skull and there was just no brain matter in that general area of the skull at all. So I immediately assumed it was a fatal wound. I turned and I gave a thumbs down to the follow-up car crew to make sure all the other agents knew how serious this was. And then I turned and screamed at the driver to get us to the nearest hospital. And he accelerated. The chief of police from Dallas, Curry, got in front of us in his car and led us to Parkland Hospital. I was wedged up on the top of the back seat. Uh, we were traveling upwards towards 80 miles an hour as we traveled down the Stevens Freeway to what turned out to be a Parkland Hospital. Wow. Wow. You, you know, I, I've, I've heard, and Joe, we, we've, we've all heard, uh, um, your discussions, your previous interviews, but, but again, going back to 1975, uh, I think it was four months after you, you left the Secret Service, 12 years, uh, 12 years after that day in 1963. You carry a lot. You, you carried around a lot of guilt, um, a lot of internalized guilt that you could have done something differently that day. Uh, personally, I, I think. Well, who cares what I think? Except to say, I, I think that uh, your actions were not only heroic but uh, nearly superhuman. As you watch the Zapruder film and you watch, uh, you see your actions. But uh, uh, that, that had to be just remor- so remarkably tough for you that day. Um, 
My goodness. It ate at me over time, too, as well. And uh, I did have that very serious sense of guilt that we hadn't done the job we were charged to do. We'd failed in our mission. And so it became more difficult as time went on because it just ate at me. Sure. Well, you know, and I understand that. And, and I, I I heard the question asked before, and I, don't, I, I certainly am no expert in, in this, but you know, I heard the question asked, uh, you know, uh, could anything have been done different? Well, I'll, I'll ask you. I mean, uh, the, the rumors about the, the uh, uh, agent's behavior before, or, you know, the night before. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, the night before, and then I believe when you described making that slow turn um, onto Elm, um, there has always been speculation of why the Secret Service seemed to fall back or, or jump off the back car. Yeah, I mean, it's any thoughts on that, or is that was that just the way it was that back then? Well, as, as we turned off of uh, just on the Elm, we were on the on the sideboards of uh, the follow car, not on the presidential vehicle, but that was because of the president's directive that we not be on the vehicle. And, and, were, and the, the crowds were so... The crowds had dropped off, yeah. so more than likely we would not have been on the back of the president's car at that time anyway, because the crowds had really dissipated compared to what they had been previously. Okay. Uh, now, I can I can say for sure that there were only worth three shots that they fired in Dewey Plaza. Um, they all came from the same position, the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories out there about the grassy knoll, about all other kinds of situations. But the, really the truth is that they were only those three shots. They all came from that Mandelker Carcano rifle that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had ordered over him from the Chicago mail horse, mail house and, uh, and uh, practiced with well he, when he got it and uh, used it and fatally killed President Kennedy. You know, I heard you... you I heard a question asked of you. I think it was at a, a, sympo- or a symposium in Dallas. I think it was uh, a year or two ago. Uh, when will the real story come out? And your response was, uh, uh, it's already out. So It's you know. it. The story has already been told. Okay. Many people will never believe that there was one individual who could do this acting alone. But the truth of the matter is, just go into research assassinations or attempted assassinations, you'll find out that 90% of the time or 99% of the time, it's one individual acting out for the first time, unknown prior to that to the legal local authorities, and, uh, you know, it just happened that this was that kind of a case. If you take look at the case of the congresswoman from Arizona that down in Arizona, she got shot. Gabby Giffords. Same situation, this guy just all of a sudden acted out. Nobody knew anything. He had a grievance or anything like that. Ronald Reagan gets shot by Hinckley. Same situation. We had no idea that Hinckley had a thing for Reagan. Same thing with George Wallace when he got shot in Maryland when he was running in 1972. Uh, so, I mean, it just goes back in history. And it, one of those situations, it's very hard for people to really look at and say, gee, maybe that is the case, because they just can't believe one person could do that. It, it, it's amazing to, to some, and, and look, there are so many theories out there, we, we get all that. And folks, this interview is not about any conspiracy about what happened. This interview really is to really take a look at uh, at Clint Hill, at, at his 
rich life under five administrations, mm-hmm. the challenges of the Secret Service to the Secret Service, but really this, this very um, uh, rich period of history that we are so blessed to have. Uh, Mr. Hill and, and Lisa McCobbin uh, here uh, discussed this with us, but we got about uh, 18 minutes left in the uh, Yeah, uh, uh, If we can move on uh, something that I find interesting and uh, you obviously have first-hand knowledge of this. The, uh, the the Johnson presidency after the assassination of Kennedy, that obviously had to be much different from any other uh, transition of power from president to president. Uh, can you tell us how it was different and what the, the attitudes were like uh, of Johnson and the people who were a part of that administration? Well, it happened so instantaneously. That's the big difference there was nothing that you could plan for leading up to it. It just, it happened uh, on that 22nd November 1963. Uh, there they, uh, there were two camps, the Kennedy camp and the Johnson camp, no question about that. They had different uh, ideologies somewhat. And uh, they I wasn't there during 1964. I remained with Mrs. Kennedy and the children for a year. After the assassination, I went up to New York and lived there, and then came back to the Johnson administration right after the presidential election in 1974, November 1964, 1964. Uh, that was a different transition for me, going from Mrs. Kennedy, then now to Lyndon Johnson and the Johnson administration. Uh, or he, at first, he didn't even want me there because he thought I couldn't be loyal to him because I'd been with the Kennedys. He was uh, convinced by one of my supervisors that it was in his best interest to have me there, and so he agreed that they'd give it a shot try, and then a couple years later they made me the agent in charge of his protection. And then a few years later, 1968 and 69, when he was leaving office, he tried to get me to move with him down to uh, Johnson City, Texas, take to uh, spend the rest of my career in the Secret Service uh, protecting him at the LBJ Ranch. But uh, I managed to convince him that I didn't take my career path, went along the banks of the Ferdinand River, and he agreed to that finally. Um, but there was a difference in the Johnson administration from the Kennedy administration, no question. Uh, that Johnson was able to uh, enact uh, more legislation probably than any previous president in the time that he was in office. Uh, he loved his LBJ ranch and spent as much time down there as he could. He would uh, bring uh, heads of state, heads of government down there. He'd bring the cabinet down there. Uh, bring the Joint Chiefs of Staff down there. Uh, they, they would meet out in the lawn of the ranch house there at the LBJ ranch and decide the budget for 19... 19- the following year, whatever year it was going to be, or discuss how to go about uh, continuing the fight in Vietnam. I mean, it was uh, spend more time down at the OPJ ranch than we probably did at the White House at times. Well, on the, the Vietnam War, this was something that I found really fascinating as we were writing this book, was um, what Clint witnessed with LBJ. You know, I had kind of grown up hearing that Vietnam was LBJ's war and it was his fault in a way and that's why we were in Vietnam but really as you read our book you see it kind of follows the 
the transition of the president as well as the flow of the Vietnam War, which actually started with Eisenhower and then ended with Ford. And with LBJ, Clint, you really saw how he struggled with all of that. He had a very difficult time. It was very emotional for him. You, you you could you could hear the protests, and I mean I remember this as a young man hearing uh, uh, having the, the protests in the streets uh, about the Vietnam War, the anti-war protests, and apparently you could hear that inside the the White House, correct? Well, you, you could you could hear them out in the street. They were on Pennsylvania Avenue and on Lafayette Park, and they were screaming, "Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today?" Uh, so we heard that, and he heard it, and. What really affected him more than anything else was every night he would walk from his bedroom down the hallway in the second floor of the White House and pick up a phone like down in the Lincoln bedroom and call the situation room and ask for the body count. They would tell him how many had been killed and how many had been wounded. And then he'd go back to his bedroom or sometimes he would call and ask for a car and he'd go down to the, the Catholic Church just off of Main Avenue in Washington, D.C., and went and he'd sit down and talk to some of the priests that were there, knowing that they'd never say anything. But it was really affecting him emotionally. Mm. And so then in uh, 1968, it wasn't really that surprising, although I was somewhat shocked when he announced that he wouldn't accept the nomination for the presidency from his own party, knowing that he had been the uh, majority leader of the Senate, He's now been vice president for years and now president. And to give all that up, I thought that was uh, remarkable. And I was uh, very surprised that he really actually decided to give it up. Yeah, he, he was indeed a politician's politician. Uh, no question about that. He was a 100% politician. He knew how to get things done. Right. He could, he could uh, harangue people into doing things you just wouldn't believe. I mean... Dick Russell was a very good friend of him and his, and uh, he wanted Dick Russell to be on the Warren Commission. And Russell didn't want to be on the Warren Commission because he didn't like Chief Justice Warren. So one day Johnson called him over to the office, and he confronted him about this, and he said, Dick, he said, uh, geez, he said, the press already has been told that you've accepted this. I don't know how we're going to explain to him that you were are unwilling to serve on the commission. I mean, he set him up <laughs> to force him to take the position on the Warren Commission. And it was a great position to have because he was a, a great man, Senator Russell. Interesting. Uh, you know, Mr. Hill, if I can ask this question, we are living in some really tumultuous times today. You see the, you saw yesterday with the uh, UC Berkeley, the protests, the the, well, not protests, but the riots. And then you, you, over the last, I don't know, uh, well, ever since the election, you're, you're seeing this uh, this uh, upset, this unrest all across the United States. Um, does this parallel what you witnessed back in the late 60s? Uh, how would you compare today versus back then in terms of society and what's what's taking place? Well, in the late 60s, uh, things got pretty bad. I mean, the Democratic Convention is a testament to that, uh, where the police had a, a horrible time there in Chicago. Uh, but th- today, I think the populace in the United States is more divided 
At that time, the division was strictly about the Vietnam War in 1968. And now it's... Race. Yeah, race was a problem too, but uh, integration, but that, the war was really the leading problem. Uh, we had large, massive demonstrations, more than 100,000 at a time in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, and uh, but now I, I, the country is divided again. But now it's not about that. It's about uh, the president being elected. And so it's uh, it's difficult. It's uh, very challenging for the Secret Service, I can say that. So they have a greater challenge today than they've ever had, in my opinion, uh, much more so than we had back in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. Uh, they're meeting that challenge, uh, doing a good job, in my opinion, from what I've seen. Sure. But uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a difficult next uh, few years, I think. Wow. I uh, and and I, I respect you. I I got to tell you, I respect you and every Secret Service agent on that detail who who says, yeah, I'm going to lay, I'll, I'll be your bullet shield or your, you know, yeah. uh, really, wow. Talk about job commitment. Yeah. Um, um, Clint, if we if we can, um, obviously the the Kennedy um, assassination and and that transition had to be the worst, but. Um, who was the most difficult? Who was your favorite president to work with, and who was the, the most difficult president you had to work with? I really don't have a favorite president, but uh, they're all so different. Uh, the only thing they really had in common was an ego, some larger than others. Uh, but uh, And some were more difficult to work with than others because, I mean, they had their certain things about them, like Johnson, for example thought that if he didn't tell anybody what he was doing, what he was going to do anything, then nobody could do his harm because nobody would know what was going on. Well, that included us sometimes. He wouldn't even tell us what he wanted to do. All of a sudden, he'd just say, this is what I'm doing. Or he'd come out of the ranch house, get in a golf cart, and start driving out to the helipad where there was also a jet star. Now, we didn't know if he was going to take that jet star and fly to Detroit or Houston, or he's going to get an helicopter and go into Austin, or going to take a car and go over and see a neighbor's ranch. Until <laughs> he made the decision when he got out of the golf cart to get in the particular conveyance he was going to use. Then he'd tell us what he was going to do. So it was troubling. It was that was a, one of the challenges we had there. We had to riots. We went around the world once uh, with little knowledge of where our next stop was going to be. That was 1967. Uh, that was with Johnson. And then with, uh, you come into, uh, uh, uh Israel, wait, wait a second. Is that, is that where, and folks, you gotta, you gotta get, you gotta read his books. Uh, uh, again, uh, Clint Hill is our guest along with, uh, Lisa McCubbin, but his, his books, uh, of course, uh, uh, Five Presidents, My Extraordinary Journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. But, but it was, it was that where, um, President Johnson was on the top of the plane and you were at the bottom? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell that story real quick? Well, we had, we had gone to Australia to attend a funeral for Prime Minister Holt to a drop. But when we got to Australia, he decided to keep on going around the world. And we went from Australia to Thailand to Vietnam to Pakistan to Rome, Italy. Finally we get to Rome and he sees President Italy and the Pope and we get him on the airplane 
This is the middle of the night. It's Christmas Eve, 1967. He puts on his pajamas and he goes to bed on board the aircraft. There's a presidential suite on there. So he can now, we're going to take off and fly toward Washington. We have to land in the Azores to refuel. So the pilot decides that since we're going to refuel there, I'll call ahead and have the posted chain stay open so everybody on the plane can get off and buy some Christmas gifts for their families because it's Christmas Eve. We haven't had a chance to do anything like that. So Johnson's asleep. We land. Everybody comes off the plane. They get on a bus to go over to the PX. I told them all to go. I'd stay there with Johnson because he was sleeping. They're all gone, and I'm down at the foot of the ramp, and all of a sudden I hear this, Hey, Clint, where is everybody? And it's Johnson. He's up on top of the ramp, standing in his pajamas. <laughs> I said, Mr. President, I said, they've all gone to the post exchange because it is Christmas Eve, and they want to buy some gifts if they can buy some. He says, well, hell, I haven't had a chance to buy anything either, so let's go. <laughs> so now he's in his pajamas. He reaches in a closet and grabs a trench coat, puts it on, down the ramp he comes, I put him in an Air Force car that happened to be there, told the driver to take us over to the post exchange. Get out of the car, walk into the post exchange, and the employees and everybody in there just froze. They couldn't believe. Here's a commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces, the leader of the free world, walking around in his pajamas in the middle of the night, buying Christmas gifts. <laughs> I mean, this was a photo op that the press missed because they had flown on to Shannon, Ireland to review them. <laughs> You can't make that up. I mean, that's just they, to me that that I I heard that and I, that that is just fantastic. My goodness, um, we only have a few minutes left. And and one question here uh, from from a listener is for Lisa. Lisa, uh, the uh, uh, Karen from Iowa wants to know about uh, uh, your fondest memory. Uh, well, your fondest memory in writing your the in co-authoring the three books. Uh, what was your fondest memory or your aha moment with respect to e- any one of the three books you wrote with, uh, Clint Hill? What was your, what was that one time when you thought, man, this, this is like great stuff? That's- um, I don't know. It's almost a, on a daily basis, <laughs> but that, that story that he just told, when he told me that, um, that was before we had, even talked about writing five presidents and that story alone I said is worth building a book around because it really does give you such an insight um I mean I'll you know I've spent so much time with Clint and it's it's truly a pleasure and I know many people envy me but uh you know we'll be watching the news together or something and and he just knows so much about Everything and there's so many moments when he'll say, "Oh yeah, I was there." You know, that was, you know, Queen somebody's funeral, and you know, (laughs) Eleanor Roosevelt's funeral. Oh yeah, I was there. You know, he was just—it's like Forrest Gump. There were just so many times he was—he was at these moments in history that's really staggering, and to have him be able to share those stories with all of us. I guess thinking of one moment, I guess the moment that he agreed to to write Mrs. Kennedy and me, he had said, no, 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 I'm never going to write a book ever. And, um, you know, I could tell the admiration he had for her just in being with him. And and I said, you know, Clint, you can write this book and have it be a tribute to Mrs. Kennedy. 
and you can put in what you want to put in and leave out what you want to leave out. It's your book. And when he thought about it like that, he said, okay, I'll do it. I want to write a tribute to Mrs. Kennedy. And that's how Mrs. Kennedy and me came about. And I think it really is a lovely tribute to a, a wonderful first lady. That's magnificent, and and I do have a copy of Mrs. Kennedy and Me. Uh, just and folks, it's it's a wonderful book. It really is. It's and that's why I mean I I said uh, I told uh, Ms. McCubbin and Mr. Hill before we began this interview. I said you know I'm nervous. I mean it's like uh, this icon of history. Yeah, but and both Lisa. McCubbin. And he's so humble. I mean I was like that too when I first met him, but. You know, when you get to know him, he's just, he's the most humble guy, and he has a great sense of humor. I think most people wouldn't <laughs> expect that, but he really does have a great sense of humor. Well, you know what? I just, I, I just want to thank both of you. We're at the end of the hour, and I just want to thank both of you for your time, your gracious gift of time. Uh, I do hope people will purchase, uh, the, all of your books, uh, Five Presidents, my, uh, uh, my extraordinary journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford, and of course Mrs. Kennedy and me. I can recommend all of them, but that one too. In five days in November, uh, and Mrs. Uh, Ms. McCubbin, uh, your books as well, and follow them on the social networking sites. God bless you both, and Mr. Hill. God bless you, sir, for your service to your country. You've really wow. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Folks, what a treat that was, Joe. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Clint, and thank you, Lisa, for your time tonight. That was fascinating to just sit back and listen. Hope we can do it again sometime in the future. And, and this was about history. You know, this was about the time that, that he, this wasn't about Grassy Knoll stuff. This was about history from, mm-hmm. from somebody who was there. Yeah, yeah. And think about that. Think about that span. Wow. And thank you, Bill McIntosh, Acosta Media. Media. Yeah, yeah Casa Media and John Robertson. God bless you both. Thank you. We're going to be right back. Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In three days in the belly of the beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the creator to his creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest-yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high-net-worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. 
For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. At HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report, let me uh, just uh, say a couple of things about our previous guests, Lisa McCubbin and Clint Hill. Clint Hill, uh, we did not get into um, anything about the assassination. That's, that's not what the interview was about. The interview was about that slice of history, and we didn't get to Nixon and Ford, and we didn't get to that part, and I wanted to. But we ran out of time. But here's the deal, folks. Okay, um, we, we look. We understand. We understand things are not always as they appear. But how often do you get to hear from a man who covered five administrations in the Secret Service, five different five administrations, has been around the world, but knows the secrets of you know five presidents? He was tasked with um, Jacqueline Kennedy's um, uh, security at that time. And this was about that period of history, that rich period of history. There was an insight into that. It wasn't about a cons- nothing about the shooting, nothing about you know what happened in Dallas. Uh, but uh, so I just want to make that clear. And you know, because I've gotten emails saying, "Well, why didn't you ask this? Why didn't you ask that?" No, no, no. Look, very iconic. I mean, think about this. It ingrained in indelible images in your mind of of that man climbing on the back of the limousine. That's who we were talking to. That's who would, That's who was there that day. And, of course, stemming back to Eisenhower when there were only 269 Secret Service agents and 40 in the presidential protection detail to today now where there's 3,600 and the fact that there's some similarities between the late 60s and today and uh, that's the subject. So, you know, I'm not, and I'm not going to make excuses or, or make uh, apologies for anything. That's exactly what, uh, so my, my thanks to Lisa McCubbin and uh, Clint Hill. And by the way, the books I mentioned have so much information, especially that uh, The Five Presidents, My Extraordinary Journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. That book especially has such uh, colorful, uh, so many colorful accounts and so much, uh, you, you read it and you feel like you're a part of that time period. And that to me is everything. And so my thanks to Bill McIntosh from Ocasa Media and uh, 
of course, Lisa McCubbin in, in Clint Hill. Our thanks. And, and John Robertson, who is our program director, thank you, my friend, for your hard work. This guy, this guy gets up at four in the morning and he doesn't hit, hit the pillow until midnight. Uh, John Robertson. He's our program director. And again, thanks to, uh, to Bill McIntosh as well. So having said all of that, I just want to get that out of the way before we get to our next guest. Now this, this folks, Stuart Rhodes, and, and he's the man of the, the hour, I believe. Well, he is definitely the man of the hour by definition, but, but, uh, Stuart Rhodes is, is one of my favorite people. He's the head of Oath Keepers, constitutional attorney. Before we get to Stuart, I want to ask you, are you prepared? Are you prepared for any eventuality? Folks, just because people think that there's a reprieve here, look, you need to be prepared. One of the, the things that people forget or people put aside saying, I don't need this, seed kits. I want to direct your attention to TexasReady.net. You need one of their seed kits. If you haven't gotten one yet, please go to TexasReady.net and get a seed kit. You will be glad you did. We bought their, we bought their uh, big seed kit. With that came uh, a training manual that teaches you to garden properly. I cannot tell you how important that manual in and of itself is. But Texas Ready supply with regionally appropriate open pollinated heirloom seeds and they're certified. Most seed companies don't take it into account their geographical differences of the buyers and they don't have certified seeds. Well, Texas Ready thinks you are special enough, you're worth it and of course they use certified seeds and they take into account uh, uh, differences in geography and they think again they think our their customers are worth it and our listeners are worth it the germination rate on their seeds is outstanding if you don't know how to garden texas ready has got you covered there they've got several excellent reference books that can help you grow plenty of nutrient dense food and lastly each texas ready seed bank contains 80 plus varieties of vegetables and fruits including a dual purpose herbs for both culinary and medicinal purposes check out their website at texasready.net if you don't have one of these get one please texasready.net joe we good there all right this hour we have with us the founder of oath keepers Stuart rhodes he's going to be joining us to talk about um, the stuff that's happening in the with the political unrest with the Trump administration, the media, and whatever else you want to get Lawfare, into. Lawfare, too. Yes. Lawfare, definitely, because that's... That's the, so important. That it is. It's being a tactic that's being used today uh, to go after um, people, to go after those people who are speaking the truth, who are speaking against the grain of, of the left. They're going after people's sponsors. They're going after the businesses at their core, and we're going to definitely get into that. Stuart Rhodes, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Well, it, I think I know where you want to start tonight. The the uh, before we get into the lawfare, the UC Berkeley protests and this uh, what I'll call domestic uh, extremism coming from the uh, the insane left and being promoted by the media, the Congress, and, and Democrats from all in and outside of the political and media sphere. What are your thoughts? Well, it's essentially a rapidly heating. Um, civil war. I know a lot of folks don't like to use that terminology, but you can call it a, a insurrection against the Constitution, which is very accurate. And on our side, it would be a battle for restoration, but it's going to take on the same characteristics as any civil war in, in human history. We have a uh, immensely divided nation. 
we have essentially communists in the Democratic Party. It's what they are. You know, Bernie Sanders is is, is a communist, and the, and the entire left of this nation is is pretty much uh, Marxist in my ideology. And what happened is, is I'm, I've just been recently reading um, Bill Ayers' book, Prairie Fire, which was the Weather Underground manual for the 1970s, their, their game plan. And they speak in that game plan, you know, of course, they were frustrated with the left not being, you know, moving fast enough and these violent means, uh, which were ultimately unsuccessful at that time. But now Bill Ayers is back. He's at the head of refused fascism. So you have a communist terrorist now leading the charge for the open call to overturn the Trump election and to overthrow our government and, and overthrow capitalism. And what the left did, instead of going the violent route, they did what they call a long march to the institutions. They, they marched through um, our political institutions, our educational institutions, the legal system, et cetera, the media. They took over all of these things, and they thought that with Obama's election and his, his re-election twice, and, and they thought Hillary would be the crowning jewel on that, you know, their, their final triumph would be the Hillary election, and after that, they'd have a permanent block of voters. They brought in mass immigration, both legal and illegal, for that purpose, to have a permanent block. And they thought they had it all, all wrapped up in a nice little bow. And so, during that time, during Obama's administration, if you criticized anything he did, they called you anti-government. Well, now they lost the election, all of a sudden we're all fascists. They, they, switched, they switched gears. They claim to be anarchists. They claim to be, you know, against totalitarian government when they spent eight years building a massive totalitarian system under Obama. So what really happened is, is they thought they had the revolution licked through political means, and now they see the Trump election and us as what they would consider the counter-revolution. So they think that they must rise up now through their last means, which is through disruption of society and creative chaos and violence against what they perceive as a fascist counter-revolution to the communist revolution. That's exactly what's happening. And um, it's pretty alarming, especially to me, to see the media and the Democratic politicians who are coming out in support of this. We talked about earlier about a Florida uh, Democrat. I can't remember her name. The, the story's been taken off of uh, the website it was on, but saying that the uh, Berkeley riots were a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you have other people, you know, there's more to come. This is just the beginning from celebrities and other people from positions of influence in politics on the left are saying, you know, this is, you haven't seen anything yet. Almost like they, they have already a pre-planned, uh, a game plan or, or some, that they, they know something we don't that, you know, this is, this is just the beginning. And I was wondering, uh, earlier, is this, are we seeing the self-destruction of the Democratic Party or are they really just transitioning and this is the, the beginning of the new left in America? Full-blown communists, right? Yeah, it's both. It is the self-destruction of the Democratic Party, but they're going for broke. You know, they're going, um, they're jumping the shark and going full-blown Marxist. So they are doing both. They, they've abandoned politics because they lost, and now they see that they must, they must carry on politics by other means, which is war. And so that's what they're doing. People need to understand that you are headed for an armed conflict in this country. Um, we have a very, very narrow window of opportunity to stop it. But the big problem is, is that it's not just the radical left, it's also the globalists, including on, on the uh, Republican side of the aisle in Congress. You've got John McCain, Lindsey Graham, other neocons that have been around forever. And then you have the deep state elements that want to overthrow our Constitution, and, and they've been around since the Kennedy assassination. You just had a good, good interview about that. 
it's the same people that overthrew Kennedy that, that got rid of him. The deep state and the shadow government's always been there, and so it's like a, it's basically a four-way fight. We face a, a axis of evil, a true one, in three elements. One, the globalists at the top, and they're in both political parties in this nation. Then you have your international globalists like George Soros, who was a, na- a Nazi collaborator, ironically enough, who sold out his fellow Jews and helped confiscate their property, and yet he's the, the great savior and saint of the left. The reason is because he supports them. So you've got, you've got the globalist, and then you've got the Marxist, which is what the Democratic Party has become. They're communists. And then you have the radical Islamists. They all have a worldview of destroying the West, they have a common enemy and a common aim against Western civilization. They'll wipe it off the face of the earth, and they each have their own vision of a utopia, a worldwide utopia, a worldwide system of government. The communists believe it will be a, a communist worldwide system of utopia, and the Marxist, or the, um, the fascist, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the globalists, who are actually are fascists, see their own ideal vision of the future, which is them in charge. Then you have the Islamists, who also see a global caliphate. So they all have the same same goal, but they are competing totalitarian ideologies that are temporarily in alliance, much like Hitler aligned with Stalin at first. Eventually they'll turn on each other, but their first goal is to wipe us off the face of the earth first. And that us includes anyone who believes in retaining their own culture, anyone who believes in retaining Western civilization, here in the United States, anyone who believes in retaining the Constitution and individual liberty. They hate it and they loathe it. So that's why they will attack a gay man, a gay Jewish guy like Milo, to them as a Nazi because he doesn't believe in, in their, their Marxist utopia. If you oppose them, you are a Nazi. Right. Yeah, and, and one, one last question related to uh, Berkeley, um, the police. You know, it's one thing to see people in protest, uh, people gathering and, and protesting, but then to see it turn violent and for there to be no police response. Yeah, where, where in the hell were the police, Stuart? Same place the uh, San Jose police were last year. They were, you know, AWOL. They detached, they stood down, they just watched. And people were beaten. And this is why you can't rely on the police. I mean, first of all, even if the police are proactive and on the job, like they just, just did, NYPD did a pretty decent job, but even they couldn't stop the initial assaults on people, so they can only react. And they can be overwhelmed, even when they have the best of intentions, but there's also the political motivation in many of these big cities, like Denver, we just saw the same thing in Denver. Any of the cities dominated by Democrats, you can expect a stand-down order. That's why people must be prepared to defend themselves. They must go in groups of six to a dozen at least and be ready to fight. And I really think that what we need to see in this country now is for the people themselves to stand up and reinstitute the militia that we're supposed to be. And I know it's a scary word, and it's been demonized by the left, but it really amounts to you and your neighbors coming together for mutual aid and self-defense. We need to do that together as a community. That's the real way to counter this. And, and supporting Oath Keepers, OathKeepers.org, so keep we, we've got to keep Oath Keepers alive, up and running, and, uh, you know, uh, they can't be out, outpacing their supply lines, so we need to make sure that we support oathkeepers.org go go there oathkeepers.org and, and make sure we support them but because you're 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 on the ground you're in the trenches you're making a difference um and you're teaching others how to do just that so yeah and, and to the militia um people do have bad connotations when when the word militia is used they think of oh, instantly yeah. of revolution or you know right wing or whatever kind of you know um uh, 
extremism it is. But if you look at what the left is doing, they don't call themselves a militia, but they, they're violent, first of all. Then secondly, they have the organization there. Um, if anything, they, they should be considered a violent militia, a, a hate group, however you want to term it. And we just have to figure out, you know, are these provocateurs, are these actual, um, the, is the violence being started by protesters or by paid protesters? There's a lot of things at play here, but um, coming together as a community, working out a plan, that's always one of the, the foundations of uh, survival in any um, catastrophe or, or calamitous situation you might find yourself in, right. and, and it's so important. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I just wanted to, with, with the word militia, people get the you know terrible ideas. And you're you're going to have but, those uh, scary black guns, too. But, yeah, but I mean, know. if you look at what the, what the other side is doing, it is much worse than, than what any militia I've ever heard of uh, or known has done. And not that I'm well, big on the, go ahead. the history, but yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, in the Founders' ideal, in the Founders' Republic, the militia is simply every able-bodied male in the community organized as a town militia and then a county militia as part of the state militia under the command of the governor. It's, it's the people themselves. And so that's what we need to get back to. And so a good shortstop to that would be right now having good neighborhood watches with teeth and then I would, I would suggest that everyone out there, all of the veterans, whether they're military or police veterans, need to come together in their town and form a town watch. And then do the same thing at the county level. You need to form town watches and county watches. It doesn't mean you become vigilantes. You're not judging who's guilty and innocent. You're not punishing anybody. You're simply defending people, you know, lives, liberty, and property. And that is, that is a righteous cause that we should all directly embrace and take responsibility for it. So really, I call on all the veterans listening to this, whether you're police or military, to do just that. In your towns, in your counties, call a meeting and bring together all the gun owners, bring together all the patriots of the community. And if, unless they're, you know, the only people you should exclude or anyone who wants to overthrow the U.S. government, if they're a lefty anarchist or um, a communist or a socialist, they should be excluded because they believe in overthrowing our Constitution. But everybody else should be brought together, whatever their race, you know, whatever their... Um, whether Democrats or Republicans, bring them together for community security and stop the violence. You cannot have someone um, terrorizing people and beating them up and hitting them over the head with poles and knocking them unconscious because they don't like their political views. And eventually someone's going to die. When you get knocked out in the street, your head bounces off the pavement. It's not like being in a ring. You're going to wind up uh, unconscious or dead because of that secondary impact. So eventually someone's going to die. That's where we're going. So I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to rely only on the police. It was never meant to be that way by the founders in the first place. So take responsibility for security in your own communities. Don't rely on us either. Don't say, oh, we not, you know, we gotta have Oath Keepers come in here and do this. It, it's really up to you and your neighbors to get together and make sure that free speech and assembly are respected and preserved. Uh, absolutely. Amen. And, and if I can, if I can just revisit something you, you said about UC Berkeley last night or the, yeah. Um, I just I want to say this that that uh, that uh, that moron that sprayed that pepper spray in that that uh, uh, young lady's hair or in, into her face. I don't know whether you saw whether people saw that or not. I think a lot did. I, I was talking to John Robertson this morning. I would have chased that bastard down. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, and, and and he would have been eating pepper spray. I, I look, you know. But anyway, um, my question, uh, Stuart, is. Where did these? This was too organized. I mean, obviously there was some notice about Milo speaking there, and then they had protesters. But 
who who are the people who had come in dressed in black carrying not i mean carrying you know weapons um who are these people? That's the anti-fascist coalition that they call themselves, or Antifa. Right. I call them Leftifa because they're actually lefty fascists. But that's who they are. And they're now very well funded. If you look at the top of the pyramid, it goes back to George Soros. He, okay. he is funding Refuse Fascism. That's the organization now started by Carl Dix from the um, Communist Party USA. Yeah. Also Bill Ayers. It's all, you know, out in the open communist. Among them, of course, are, um, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Cornell West. Yes. Who was one of the founders of the, of the Revolutionary Communist Party USA. Yep. That's one of the people that's behind all this as well. And, and, and of course, he just served on the Democratic Party's, uh, platform committee. So this is, they're deep inside the Democratic Party and, and the Democratic Party is now dominated by Marxists. Okay. Keith Ellison was a former communist who became a Muslim because he thought it was easier to um, gain political power and, and gain his goals by becoming Muslim in Minnesota, where you have a large Muslim population. So they're all linked together. You've got a, a, an unholy alliance between the radical left and, and radical Islamists who share the same exact goal, which is destruction of the West. And they also agree with, and they're part of the same um, movement that wants to separate out the Southwest United States, La Raza, La Mecca, those are all communist-inspired and led um, separatist organizations and racist organizations that they, that they support. And the same goes for black nationalists. You know, that's what the communists do. They, they always aggravate and, and amplify any any splits in the society, any any racism, any um, any latent feelings of, of being oppressed. They'll go and, and, and appeal to minorities and tell them that their own society is racist, inherently racist, and, and uh, authoritarian and oppressive. And, you know, the whole list of things they throw at the Western civilization. And so they convince them the only way to survive, the only way they're ever going to be free, by their definition, is to rise up and overthrow their own society. So they've turned Mexican-Americans and Hispanic-Americans against their own country. They've done their best to turn uh, black Americans against their own nation as well. And they, they do it through either radical communism or through Islam, either one. Either one that, that has the same result. Gotcha. And the the vitriol that we're seeing coming from these groups and their useless uh, minions or the the minions the useful idiots is just amazing to me. Um, in your gut, uh, uh, this is as worse as it's been for a long time, isn't it? It is, and I think it's because the globalists realize that there's a pushback happening. They see it in Europe. They see it with Brexit, and they see it here in the United States. I mean, Trump is is really a reflection of the backlash of, of Americans. When you look at the split between urban and rural, it's a very serious issue. Um, Navy SEAL veteran Matt Bracken, you know, wrote about this extensively and he has what he calls a Civil War Civil War II cube. I would recommend you guys go look that up and take a look at it. It splits along urban and rural lines and it splits along racial lines. You know, and I say this as a as a guy whose family came from Mexico. I have great grandparents who came from Mexico uh, two generations ago to escape what Mexico had become, very corrupt. They came in the 1920s and they, you know, they assimilated and, and her son served in World War II as, uh, Marine infantry fighting in the Pacific against the, against the Japanese. But my family assimilated, became Americans. Now all the immigrants are being taught not to assimilate, to hate this country and to instead have a loyalty to the country they came from. That's why you see, um, you know, Mexican flags being flown at these protests. That's why you see you know, communist flags being flown, they're being taught to hate their own nation and want to throw it, overthrow it. So I think Trump is absolutely correct. Um, in fact, I would call on him to impose a wall of troops right now, 
Don't wait for the wall to be built. Put the troops on the ground. He has, he has General Mattis now, who's Defense Secretary, a very competent man. Just give him the order to secure the border using all of the assets of the DOD and get it done now. Do not wait. And the reason is because you're going to get more jihadis coming across the border. You're going to get more of the cartels. The cartels and the gangs, MS-13, etc., are other force multipliers used by the domestic enemies of the Constitution to cause more chaos. And the longer that border is open, the worse it's going to be. So you already have cartels running Texas towns now, where at least half the population are illegals, and the cartel runs everything. It's already happening. So they need to seal the border, and then we need to deal with the ones that are already inside. There was um, a story, I believe it was yesterday, and I don't know who this person was. I didn't catch the name of a, it was either a lawmaker. Somebody was being interviewed on, on one of the networks about, you know, the border and the wall, and they said, you know, the, the cartel should flood the streets with drugs and, and gang members to counter Trump's position on the wall. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's part of the creative chaos. The more chaos, it goes back to the cloud privilege strategy of overwhelming the system and causing as much chaos as possible. So that's exactly what they're going to do. They don't care, and they're becoming more blatant about it. They're openly calling for cartel murders in, inside the United States. The more chaos, the better. And this gives them the, they think, the environment in which they can rise to the top, much like the Bolsheviks. When they overthrew the Tsar, they were in alliance with other groups, but then, of course, at the end, it was the Bolsheviks who took over and became the dictatorship of the proletariat, which meant Lenin is the dictator, and then Stalin. And they never went away. There was no dissolving of the dictatorship once, once it was in power. And this is what communists do throughout human history, whether it's Mao, whether it's Pol Pot, whether it's Castro in Cuba. They're there till death, till death do they part. So that is what's coming. If we don't stop it, in com- combination with the globalist and the radical Marxist, it ends with all of us in the bottom of a ditch. That's where we're headed. Yeah. What's so Americans need to realize that this is where we're going and get ready for it. I don't know whether you saw this, Joe. We we, we got probably a hundred plus emails. Uh, there's uh, petitions being drafted to the White House to have Soros arrested. Yeah, there's all kinds of. Petitions. I don't know whether you, uh, you know. You Soros any... arrested to have him, uh, you know, defunded, banned from the U.S. I saw a number of. Them. Do you put any stock into that uh, petitions like that, uh, Stuart? Well, I hope I hope I hope Trump does. I hope he pays attention and listens. Right. The next time George Soros sets foot on American American soil, he should be arrested. You know, he, he should... He's he's over in Hungary right now, right? That's Soros. I'm not sure. Okay. I believe so. He's a, he, he's a Hungarian Jew who betrayed his own people and, and was a Nazi collaborator. There's, there's an old um, <laughs> 60 Minutes interview of him talking about what he did and why. And he basically said, well, if I didn't do it, somebody else would have. That was yep. his, his defense yeah. of what he did. And how, how, so it's, it's are, ironic. He's a, he's a Nazi collaborator, and yet they take his money. He's funding all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just uh, I was going to say how ironic is it that you know they're labeling Trump a Nazi and Trump supporters Nazis, but they actually work for somebody who was a Nazi. That's amazing. Yeah, they're, they're Soros' whores. They will do whatever he tells them to do because he gives them lots of money. And because they think, in the end, they, the, the Marxist, will, will rise to the top of, of the heap, of the stack of, of the big pile of uh, skulls, and be in charge. Now, I think Soros and his other fellow globalists have a different idea. I agree. Yeah, indeed. And we're, uh, we're talking about Stuart Rhodes. Attorney, Stuart Rhodes. Yeah, Constitutional well, Actually, attorney. I'm not an attorney anymore. I don't or, practice law, but I am a Yale Law graduate. And I wanted to correct also on your website, you said I was an Army Ranger. I was not. 
I was a uh, airborne reconnaissance scout, so make sure that's our, clear. Yeah, our apologies. That's our fault. We'll, we'll we're coming it. up against the break right now, but when we come back, we're going to continue to be to talk with Stuart Rhodes from OathKeepers.org. We're going to get into lawfare as well as continue our discussion on the political climate in America today. Don't go anywhere. We've got one segment left. You're listening to the Hagman Report. Stay with us. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Uh, masterpreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you could possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. To, I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Eric's. It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family, masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? From all of us at Training Post in the Woods, we pray you have a healthy, safe, and prosperous 2017. And we would like to thank all of you for welcoming us to the Hagman and Hagman family. You're all a very wonderful and special group of people. Because we believe it is so important for you to work and acquire good health this year, we're going to do something that we've never done before as a thank you to you for your support. We're going to make something available that we believe everyone needs. During the month of January, anyone who invests in their house by purchasing either our American Heritage Remedies Kit, our Survivalist Natural Remedies Kit, or $200 in individual remedies of your choice, we're going to give to you our crisis remedy just in case for free. Your health must be a part of your preparation plan. We're here to help you with that journey. May God bless y'all, and may God bless America. Happy Happy New Year! This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. You can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. segment this evening. We are joined with, by Stuart Rhodes from OathKeepers.org. 
Uh, he's been with us since the beginning of the hour, and we're going to go ahead and continue to uh, conduct the rest of this interview. We've got a lot of stuff to get into. Um, during the break, we were talking, and uh, we asked you this question. The the turmoil and chaos that is being provoked by the left and, and carried out by the left, my question was, is this just to create chaos and instability in the world of politics, or is this to provoke a response from the other side in order to be able to blame them uh, for the violence? I mean, I know they're already blaming uh, I, I like this answer, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the answer is yes to both. Exactly right. Um, it's either it's, it's Dan if you do and Dan if you don't is what they're trying to set up. So they, what they're setting up is is intimidation and chaos to to have this you know uproar of like an Arab Spring kind of thing where they demand as they've said in their own documents you go to, you go to the refused fascism website and they talk about the Mubarak example and and the other other Arab Springs where they had mass protests that demanded the resignation of the president and they they achieved his resignation that's what they're trying to do here so I think part of it is to create so much chaos they can. Go to the establishment. They say themselves there, there are elements in the establishment led by John McCain and Lindsey Graham, for example, in, in, in the Senate, who don't like Trump and, and, and want to get rid of him. And so they're hoping they can. The Marxists are hoping they can cause enough chaos to give that establishment their excuse for declaring Trump uh, mentally incompetent or impeaching him. And the mental, mental incompetence one is most likely, I think. I think impeachment is very difficult. But I think the um, their, their hope is they can get him to, to declare him mentally incompetent and then put Pence in. And frankly, I don't trust Pence fully. I think you he's know, much more neocon than he than he is an anti globalist. And, and I I totally agree with you on this. Uh, we're going to have uh, uh, we're going to have uh, CIA case officer Robert David Steele on I think next week. But having said that, uh, he, he well he touches upon this, but. Um, I can see the media, and MSNBC in particular, along with people like uh, Rachel Maddow and uh, uh, some of these other freaks out there that are, are setting this up. Hey, Trump, he's up, uh, you know, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning sending out tweets, uh, really making a case for his mental instability. And I really think people ought to be paying very close attention to this, the fact that we're being programmed for this, exactly what you said. Right, and our response to that should be a hard line in the sand that we won't accept that. If they're going to attempt to declare him mentally incompetent because they don't like his policies, especially on immigration and the border, for example, which is what they're focusing on right now, then I think our answer should should be that we will not accept that and we won't stand for it, which means we'll take action to stop it. And if we make it a hard line uh, stand on that, it's more likely that we'll prevent it from happening. Right. And the same goes for his assassination, too. I mean, I, I hope he has the best security in the world. I hear he's hired some ex-SAS guys, and I, I sure hope that's true, and that they're very confident because they'll either try to kill him or they'll try to stop him through political means. I, I Yeah. And I, I've heard that, too. I've heard that, that he's got people watching the watchers. So whatever you want to make of that, um, obviously that's pretty... Uh, it's pretty intense, and, and I do fear for his safety. Um, yeah, I really one do. Thing, one thing, going back to the other question about whether or not it's a you know trying to spark a reaction, the answer is yes to that as well. They hope to have Trump act like a fascist, you know, in their view, and crack down on them. And so that's why I say the real answer should be that the, we, the people, need to step up in our communities and secure our own free speech. 
Um, so we don't have to have a you know overt, heavy-handed military or police response to put this down. And constitutionally, it's the militia of the people who are responsible for suppressing insurrections, right? Right. And executing the laws of the union, and and also also to defend against invasions. And so we don't have a formal militia anymore. But we still have us out here as a so-called unorganized militia. And one thing Trump could do is call on Americans to do it. That's what I just said. In their counties, form county watches and become at least an organized county watch that can act as the militia when the time comes. And that way, it's we the people, not the U.S. military, which is which is going from the frying pan into the fire. We don't want to see a military dictatorship in this country. We don't want to see a heavy-handed military response because all that will do is is give the leftists their you know their um, their evidence that America really is turning fascist. So, but no matter what you do, they're going to label you a fascist. But we still don't want to. We want to adhere to the Constitution as closely as we can. So it really comes down to us, the veterans in particular, and the military veterans and, and police veterans both, um, along with the gunners, to stand up, and make sure that our communities are secure under the Constitution without violating it. Okay, uh, Stuart, let me ask you this: the 2020 elections, with everything that's going on right now, do you think that with this pace, with this violence and this rage from the left, do you think they are securing their spot not to, to be in the White House in 2020? Uh, that the whether it's Trump or whoever else would, will be able to use their own hypocrisy, their own violence when they don't get their way against them? Or do you think that with these tactics they'll be able to gain some momentum? Um, no, I think, I think politically they're done. Um, the only way they could possibly win the White House in 2020 is if Trump's assassinated, I think, and they put another neocon in that, that um, no one's excited about. That's why Barack Obama won twice. They ran uh, two neocons. They ran, they ran Mitt Romney and, and John McCain before him, and there were neither one of them anyone that was you know serious about protecting our country um, against the you know the illegal invasion or who was serious about rolling back NAFTA or or rolling back any of the you know the great second sound of our jobs going overseas, no one would vote for them because they're all open border globalists, you know. And so that is why Trump won. He is the Molotov cocktail, as, as Michael Moore described him. And it's two huge issues. One is our economy, and the other one is is the wide open borders. That's why he won. Mm. And, I, and I can uh, certainly I can see. Uh, a situation being uh, orchestrated where it's going to be blamed on Trump, dumped dumped in Trump's lap, if, if even if he survives, literally or um, politically, you know, it's it just it, it it's a great great setup here that, that I see taking place. Um, right. It's and, economic collapse, probably right. Yeah, I think I think what they'll do is they'll collapse the economy. They'll use either they'll use the disruptions they've already already started to do that. Or they'll have the Saudis dump the dollar as the as the medium of exchange for the oil, and either way they'll blame it on Trump. So I think Americans need to get ready for that. I think they need to presume it's going to happen. That's why they've got to be storing food and they've got to get, be getting ready to provide security for themselves and their own their own towns. Indeed, yeah, and we we can't rest on our elbows saying, hey, you know what? Uh, we've been given a reprieve because uh, Trump's in office. He's rolling things back. Um, but, uh, and I sent a tweet out, uh, today, uh, that picture that was on Drudge, uh, UC Berkeley, the, uh, generator, light generator of fire that had Milo, and it was a, anyway, to me, that's Obama's legacy. 
that is, uh, I mean, Obama owns that. That's his legacy. That's my view of this. Uh, it, 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 I guess, I don't know why. I mean, no comment necessary, but that's just, you know, he set this up. Uh, and, and we, we have traitors, traitorous people all around with Trump, I believe, as, as you had mentioned before. What, and, and this is a question that we kind of skimmed, uh, uh, off air. What are, what are we missing here? What, are, what, what do we need to be focused on? I think the great um, weakness we have is our economy, and I think the great danger is, as I said, an economic collapse, a triggered economic collapse that is used as kind of like a neutron bomb, economic neutron bomb, to scrub all of those deplorables off the face of the earth. I, I believe that's what's coming. I mean, throughout human history, you know, denial of food has been used as a weapon of warfare, so you can expect an economic collapse in this country as, as a way for the globalists to you know, if they can't win through other mechanisms, that's our, that's our last resort, is to go ahead and scrub us. So that's why you must store food, not just for yourself, but also for your neighbors and your community. And you must get together and provide mutual aid. And you need to start doing that now. You can't wait until the event happens. You need to start organizing now, hopefully behind a good sheriff, a good police chief, that you can get behind and, and do it, you know, officially. But if not, then you must do it yourselves in your community with as much credibility as you can, um, purely defensive. That's why it has to be neighborhood watches, church security teams. I think we're going to see a wave of weather underground style terrorism coming our way as well. I think that's that's a, a given. We're going to see IUDs. We're going to see improvised explosive devices um, in this country. IUDs. You're going to see the, the left going full, um, you know, full chaos on us in an attempt to cause as much disruption as possible and crash the economy and then blame Trump. Got so it. whether it comes from internal or external, we should see an economic collapse on the horizon. That's something I agree with. Um, it's it's a, a tool that could be very effective. And it's unfortunate that they would go to such lengths to to take down a president and at the same time destroy so many lives, uh, American lives in the process. But that just shows you um, how they really feel, who these people really are. They don't care. Uh, they just want to get their way at any cost. And it, it, it's... Um, it's so alarming uh, and very frustrating to deal with. You know, I saw uh, Rachel Maddow. Um, there was a, an article, a snippet on Mediate, where she was um, bragging that the opposition on the left has far exceeded that of the Tea Party in 2010. Yeah. And I remember in 2010, she she did those um, the rise of the the Reich or the Fourth Reich or whatever it was. Um, you know portraying these tea party people as you know violent militias and oh yeah uh, of course it, it was just crazy but now she's bragging about how you know this this movement has far outpaced uh the tea party in 2010 almost giddy about it which right. you know this encouragement by the media i mean you expect them to lie i guess you don't expect them or ha- i haven't expected them to promote you know internal violence which is what they're doing by not speaking out against it and not calling it violence. Um, yeah, speaking of that, is is Obama kind of hanging around here? Is you expect a kind of like you know a mole sticking its head out of the ground? Is he is he going to come out here anytime soon and kind of add to the add fuel to the fire, or is he kind of just behind the scenes uh, stoking things up? He already has. He's already come out in, in, in supporting these protests. It's some kind of a great um, what did he call it? 
It's right. great to see the public engagement, you know, and in, in communities. Yeah. He's already given. He's virtue signaling. I mean, virtue signal before he left. He he parted a bunch of terrorists and a bunch of uh, bunch of thugs. He 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 told everybody exactly who is the the person to follow. Follow the terrorists. Follow the people that killed police officers. Those are your idols. That's who he pardoned. And then, then it's no, no, no mistake at all that you have, um, you know, something like Bill Ayers coming out of the woodwork, this old ancient communist terrorist is now at the head of all this stuff. That's who they idolize. He's there. It's kind of like George Washington. Right. We had our we had our undercover operatives in the meetings where he was sitting at the table, and he was completely silent, but he was like their George Washington at the Constitutional Convention. And he was sitting there, you know, lending his gravitas and his presence to the meeting and letting everyone know that this is the real goal. The real goal is to follow his example, so which is to blow up police stations and kill police officers. You, okay, j- just to be clear, and folks, listen to this. Okay, so just to be clear, so I understand this. You had undercover operatives in meetings where Ayers was there as kind of a, uh, shall we say, a, a dignitary, so to speak. Yes, yeah. yes. We infiltrated um, refused fascism. We infiltrated Antifa, the anti- anti-fascist coalition. Right. We infiltrated Disrupt J20. And we started doing this the day after the election, as soon as they started organizing for this for this movement. And, and this is why we need to support Oath Keepers, folks. Do what you can to this day, because this is the resistance. Um, uh, boy, I hate to use that word too, because isn't the res- isn't there a group a resistance group called resistance on the left, or am I? Or is that just a, a um, meme? I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I mean, look at look at us like this. Um, we have, we can definitely provide intelligence, we can provide leadership and training, but the real resistance to the globalists is the American people. And we have a large population out there still of very patriotic Americans. Most of them live in the, you know, the flyover country, rural America. There really is a sad split between city and, and rural. It's very real. Look at the map of the counties that went for Trump and versus the counties that went for, for Hillary, and you can see it very starkly. Right. So, but they, they understand that they're not going to be able to brainwash us. They, they, they tried and failed. So now their last resort is to kill us all. Uh, I think people need to accept that reality that they're not going to stop. Look at the pattern of history. Look at how they've behaved in the past. Totalitarian, you know, Marxist totalitarians don't stop unless they're stopped. Gotcha. If we, if we can address one, one more, th- one thing kind of out of left field here is, is the issue of lawfare. We're, we're seeing, at least I'm seeing, uh, independent media groups, groups even such as yours and perhaps you're familiar intimately perhaps with the tactic of lawfare, the tactic of censorship, whether it's on social media or what, what in whatever venue. Are you experiencing any, anything, um, for example, like censorship or like, well, uh, anything that would relate to the larger topic of lawfare. Well, we certainly did during the during the, the um, Obama administration. I think, think things have, you know, things are a little bit different now, unless the neoconservatives manage to, you know, capture the Trump administration. I think the folks on the political right have much less to fear. I do think he needs to pardon all of the people involved with Bundy Ranch. We have good people, such as Todd Angle, Eric Parker, um, the other guys named Leslie Stewart, I believe. Guys who were just, you know, they're on the bridge doing their best to stand up for this family's rights and are still rotting away in jail with, without a trial. You know, so I think Trump should immediately um, end the prosecutions of them and set them free. And those who have been prosecuted already or who uh, took plea deals, he should pardon them. And the model I would look to is what George Washington did after the Whiskey Rebellion. 
you know, he, even even though he disagreed with what they did, and he actually led a militia group against them, um, he called out the militia to suppress them, he pardoned the ringleaders who were convicted. And so I think that's the same thing here, but even more righteous. You know, you have a, a genuinely good cause out west of, of the frustration and concern for the, the stripping of the American um, ranchers and farmers of, of their right to, to farm. And ranch, and so I think it's a legitimate concern, and, and we should have those people pardoned. Indeed, um, so I think that's that's one thing he could do right away to stop the lawfare that's already happened. All right, and is is there, uh, sort of, is, is there anything you know of any initiative, any any petition? Yeah, there's, there's actually a, um, there's a petition now up on the White House website for just that to pardon. A long list of people. Um, I would like to see them add on the folks involved in the Bundy Ranch situation in particular, but it's a good start. As they're calling for Trump to meet with a coalition of, of people. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the organization that did it, but it was led by uh, Sheriff Mack, I believe, um, and, and some of his associates in Utah. Okay. But I just got a call yesterday and agreed to sign on to it. So, but you know, they should pardon all those people. Absolutely. If, if Obama can pardon terrorists and cop killers and and uh, you know, drug dealers, then, then certainly you can pardon a bunch of cowboys. I think Trump should do that. Gotcha. Um, another question I have. It's kind of just a dangling question. You know, we're we're seeing these meetings of uh, the the Senate Finance Committee and the Judiciary Committees and such, and Democrats are in MIA. Uh, any thoughts on that? The tactics that are at play here. I mean, I, I understand what I understand what the news or the media is, you know, to, uh, uh, reporting on. But uh, are, are are we being set up to like believe that a coup has taken place? I just I, I'm kind of I'm trying to look at this from a multi-dimensional aspect, kind of view. I don't even know if that made sense, but you, you know what I'm saying? It just seems like there's some really weird things going on inside the Beltway, inside the government. Well, sure, because you have the deep state, you have the you know the obvious collusion between you know Chuck Schumer and, and John McCain, and you got the CIA investigating you know their own leadership and, and, and the new president. It's bizarre to see the, the reaction of the deep state to Trump. You know, these are globalists that were you know, look, look back to the Bush years. During Bush, uh, you know, Bush Jr. there, they were calling for a united border between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, you know, wiping out our border, you know, North American Union, all that was very real. That's what these people want. They want the wide open borders. And, and the Republican neocons and, and the uh, globalists inside the GOP are, are perfectly fine as long as they get to be, you know, players at the table, they're fine with it, with a permanent majority in the Democrats, and they're fine with the wiping out of the United States as, as a, as an independent country. So they're, those are all internal enemies. They're, they're in line with the radical left as much as, as much as the globalists like George Soros are. They're, they're globalist, uh, minions inside the United States. So that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with that, that unholy alliance, all three of those elements that are against us. It's a very tough fight. It's a fight to the death, and we can't stop. And this is what's sad about, you know, in the wake of the election, a lot of Americans have gone back to sleep. They think, well, you know, things are fine now. Our guy's in charge. This is the beginning. There was a battle, not the war. This is the beginning of the fight. It absolutely is. And uh, I think we talked about this last time you were on, but that, that attitude, um, the one, if there's one positive aspect of, of this political unrest, it is that the unrest is turning some of those people who put their feet up and said, okay, you know, I can put this on cruise control. It's putting them back, bringing them back into the 
political atmosphere, at least to the point where they're they're paying attention again, um, and, and they see what's going on. But there are a lot of people that feel that way that think because Trump's in, um, you know, I don't have to worry, I don't have to continue to research or or uh, find out what's really going on. I can trust what this guy's doing and this administration's doing, and and leave it at that. And that's for any administration. That's a dangerous place for for a population to be. Um, especially in this country, you know, and, and the presidents we've seen in the past and and the shenanigans that go on with Congress and Senate and, and just these backroom deals. And, you know, I just it just keeps coming to mind the Clinton pay-for-pay scandal um, and, the, you know, the special access programs and the, the Clinton Foundation and all the, the favors, the, the, the money that were given for political favors and access. I have to imagine that that happens at all levels of government and it happens much more than, than we see uh, and just that alone, you know, when we talk, and we also, when we look at the um, federal, the politics of the federal government, everybody should have as much focus on the local governments as we do on the federal governments. If you really want things to change, you have to get involved at the local level. And everybody's so busy looking at the, you know, the presidency, nobody's looking at their city council or school board and areas where they can affect change locally, and I think that's a, a big deal, and we need to start focusing there. Yeah, definitely. Um, the corruption is in both parties. It's endemic. The entire system is corrupt. And we need to hold Trump to his promise to drain the swamp. He needs to drain all of it, every last nook and cranny. And frankly, um, you know, he should get rid of CIA and get rid of DHS and NSA. These are, these are, these are like, these are like cancers on the Republic that have grown exponentially since the 1950s. During the Cold War, they grew exponentially. You know, Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex. They grew under under the Cold War, and it's never gone away. That's the shadow government. That's the deep state. Those are the people who don't like anyone standing up for American sovereignty and the Constitution. They don't want it. So just realize that. Now, there are some people who do work for the CIA or or do work in you know DHS who joined up for the right reasons after 9/11 and you know the best of intentions. So there's still some good patriots in there. But the system itself is corrupt. That's exactly. the problem. They're, they're corrupt institutions. So we need to clean them out. And, and, and as you said, we also see, like in Oregon, for example, you've got a, a radical leftist governor there who is making war on the gun owners in Oregon. Uh, California is doing the same exact thing. And so you're looking at a ticking time bomb right there that may lead to um, open warfare in those states. So it's something to pay attention to. And I think the answer is is county resistance. County sheriffs united by their you know their local patriots in their counties behind them to resist that that kind of tyranny. Resistance um, is local. Yeah, it has to be. We have a f- it does. just a few minutes left, uh, Stuart. We're talking about Stuart Rhodes from OathKeepers.org. I want to ask you this question, kind of out of left field. Um, the Federal Reserve. Do you expect during the Trump administration? Is this something that's on his radar? Uh, from your knowledge, is this something we can expect him to? try to fix or is this something that we we won't won't see um well he should i i I don't think it really is on his radar but we need to put it on his radar but at the end if you want to go back to the beginnings of the deep state or the shadow government it's with the federal reserve you know so go way back to 1913 that's where it started and so i think in you know the only way you're going to have um a return to the founders republic is to have restoration of real money in this country along with the militia, those are the two greatest deficiencies. As Dr. Evan Vieira pointed out, 
He called it going to the root of the problem. A very good article he wrote years ago about this. Those are the two great Achilles heels we have is no sound money and no security, no actual security of the people in their own communities. And those are the two you know, great deficiencies that will kill this republic. Exactly, and and folks, uh, oathkeepers dot org. One of the mo- one of the most fascinating articles to read is Operation Hypo After Action Report: uh, Infiltrating Violent Protest Organizations. Go to oathkeepers dot org. Read that article. Understand what they have done and are doing to keep us safe and and to really well. Uh, they're they're the boots on the ground countering this violent crap that we're seeing and of course you can support their efforts uh, by going to their website and and uh, making a donation Mr. Rose is there anything that we haven't covered here we got about uh, oh, about a minute minute and a half left anything that you'd like to speak on or, or promote or anything we haven't covered well yeah we have a good writer uh, Navy Jack who writes for us he's been tracking all of these groups across the country and I would encourage folks to pay attention to our website we'll be having more on who these people really are coming up right away. Um, and I would encourage people in their own community to start tracking these groups. Make sure you're paying attention to who they are, um, who they're aligned with, and what they're doing. We're starting to see more. Um, in fact, in Oregon, we just, we just talked to one of our Oregon leaders. You had Antifa going out into the rural communities where strong sheriffs are stood up to their governor and are holding demonstrations in these rural towns demanding the resignation of the sheriff. That's the, the beginning of what I think they're going to do is try to uh, bring um, intimidation in, into the rural communities. So get ready for that. <laughs> that thank you. Get killed, just like you said earlier. Yeah. It's yeah. about, about to blow. So, Stuart Rhodes, thank you so very much for your gracious gift of time tonight. Thank you so much for your information and all of the work that you and your organization does we support you. We, uh, you're in our prayers, and uh, we would urge everyone to support your your efforts. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks right. a lot. Thanks. Have a good night, sir. You too. That was, uh, folks. That was Stuart Rhodes, a gentleman that we have we really have grown to respect a lot. Joe, he's yeah. He, uh, um, they're making a difference. Absolutely. Um, the last time he joined us was the the on the eve of the inauguration. Well, he was on his way to the deplorable, and they're yeah. staying um, current and informed on um, a number of issues. And like he said, I read an article earlier about the Oath Keepers organization infiltrating the that anti-fascist movement. Yes, um, and this is an important work um, exposing these people for who they really are is one of the most important and effective we, ways to we are really show the rest of the country what we're dealing with because yeah. we see the the. Domestic terrorists that the left who have turned into to domestic terrorists, whether they're actual uh, left wing people or they are paid provocateurs and agitators, um, I think we'll see that it's both. Um, definitely not one or the other. It's both. You're but gonna. You're, it's gonna continue. It's gonna. I mean. Yeah. Especially if the money's involved. That's one thing that's sad that people can be bought um, to go around and start this trouble. With really no dog in the fight, except the money, well, that's something troubling. And and the the cutting the head off the snake would be to and, and see the, the funding table, ability right? from George Soros. Yeah, exactly. But what well, there's others be it well oh, beyond George yeah. Soros. But and, and for a seat at the table, how much can you sell your soul for? And that's the that's exactly what they're doing. You know, folks, uh, uh, please support our sponsors. 
Sherry's Berries, for example. I just want to hold this box up here, Sherry's Berries. Go to berries, B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. And then after you, and you get the I, Sherry's Berries, you can go to Texas Ready and get some seeds and plant you your own strawberries and get your own chocolate. Wow. And, yeah, just a, and of course, uh, you know, all of our sponsors, we want to thank everyone who supports us. Thank you so much for your belief and trust in us. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for supporting us as well, because we are, we are attempting to really lay all this out and to, uh, to change up a little bit, to charge up a little bit. And I, and I hope, uh, that we, well, I just, I, I hope you're seeing the fruits of our efforts and your support. And we have a full show tomorrow full of guests. So make sure you tune in. Until then, stay safe. God bless. Have a good night.